Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. For the best part of an hour and a half, the two men sat opposite each other in a small, dimly lit room. They smoked, made small talk, did the crossword, and occasionally, as bouts of boredom took him, Johnny had a little snooze, as Albert kept him fed and watered with a steady supply of tea and toast. Earlier in the afternoon of Monday the 28th of February 1949, 39-year-old John George Haig, a respected director of an engineering firm, who was Johnny to his pals and Sonny to his beloved parents, had once again volunteered his time to assist the police following the disappearance of his good friend, co-tenant and prospective business partner, Mrs. Henrietta Durand-Deacon, who he had reported missing. Interview Room 3 of Chelsea Police Station was barely big enough for two men, let alone four. So being just eight foot square, with no windows, a small table, and only one door, as Chief Superintendent Thomas Barrett and Divisional Detective Inspector Shelley Symes had stepped away, Detective Inspector Albert Webb and Johnny Haig passed the time waiting their return. Johnny was an unassuming little fellow, five foot eight and ten stone at a push, with a weedy little body that a stiff breeze could easily blow over. Raised well, he was polite, calm and respectful. As a dapper middle-class gent, he was fastidiously neat, with shiny black shoes, a starred shirt and a smart brown suit, topped off with a red tie and socks as a bold flourish of colour. And although Johnny was just a few weeks away from his 40th birthday, He looked almost boyish, being blessed with a little round face, dimples in his cheeks, a side parting, and a feeble little moustache, who spoke well and never swore, but always at a slightly feminine pitch, as if his voice had never broken. Yes, it's fair to say that Johnny Haig was a pleasant sort of chap, who was unassuming, unthreatening, amiable, and easily forgettable. And although they couldn't prove it, the police suspected otherwise. Being locked in an airless box, a ticking clock, a numb bum, and Webb saying nothing, as years in the force had taught him the unsettling power of silence. At 7.15pm, Johnny piped up, 
What are they doing now? Symes and Barrett, I mean. Webb bluntly uttered. Well, John, I don't really know. But I should imagine they're working hard in order to get you hanged. Unperturbed, Johnny asked. Hanged? What on earth for? Falling into the trap which Webb had set. Oh, you know very well that they only hang people for one reason in this country. Don't you, John? Over the last five years, unassuming little Johnny Haig had befriended six wealthy persons, the Swan family, the Hendersons and Mrs. Duran Deacon. He had assumed their identities, inherited their estates, drained their assets, and all six had mysteriously vanished. And almost no one had noticed. And as a cocky impish grin spread across his boyish face, and his eyes, like cold dark marbles, twinkled, Johnny smirked, You can't prove I murdered anybody. You can't prove a murder without a body. As with a callous coolness, the little killer quipped, You know those people that disappeared? They no longer exist. No trace of them will ever be found. And yet, right there, in interview room three at Chelsea Police Station, John George Haig, one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, would brazenly confess to six perfect murders. But without a body, the police could do nothing. John George Haig was born on the 27th of April 1909, the only child of John and Emily Haig, a mining engineer and a housewife, who were both 37 years old, married for 11, and faithful right through their old age. Johnny's entrance into the world was unremarkable. Born in the bedroom of a small terraced house at 22 Kings Road in Stamford, Lincolnshire, a respectable upper-working-class street for the skilled and educated in a prosperous mining community. Although born a little undersized, his birth was uneventful. As a baby, he was no bother at all. He slept well, ate well, played quietly, rarely cried, and being blessed with no diseases, disabilities or deformities, his health was never an issue. In fact, as to be expected from a family with no history of drink or drugs, assaults or abuse, instability, insanity or incarceration, as a good boy who never had a tantrum, there were no significant events which troubled his early life. In 1910, the family moved to a larger home at 112 Ledger Lane in Outwood, north of Wakefield. And for the rest of their lives, they suffered no period of unemployment, poverty, depression, or separation. As a boy, John wholeheartedly adopted his parents' beliefs by becoming a member of the Protestant nonconformist sect, the Plymouth Brethren, a small puritanical group with a strict moral code, a dour formal dress, and an unflinching politeness, who believed that the Bible was the word of God. So unless it is expressly stated, everything was forbidden, 
including Easter, Christmas and wearing crucifixes. So devout were the Plymouth Brethren, they shunned anything that distracted them from serving God. Hence the Hague household was always neat, clean but sparse. And with no radio, newspapers or books, except the Bible, they kept their minds pure, their hearts innocent and all sins at a distance. And to ensure this, hospitality was forbidden, friends were limited to those of their tiny congregation, and John Sr. built an eight-foot wall around their back garden to shield them from any outside influences. It may seem severe, but Johnny embraced his faith, which stayed with him for most of his life. To any outsiders, although the Hagues bristled with an unpleasant air of superiority, often being cold, aloof, distant and quite snooty, by living closer to the Bible, they never intended to offend anyone. All John and Emily Hague ever wanted was to serve God and to do the best for their son. Age seven, Johnny went to prep school. Being a little boy, dressed in smart suits, shiny shoes and bow ties, he was often bullied. But buoyed by his faith, he brushed off these insults without any emotion. Aged 11, Johnny won a prestigious scholarship to Wakefield Grammar, a Church of England school attached to Wakefield Cathedral. And although its teachings conflicted with their strict religious beliefs, having become an altar boy, a chorister, and an organist having learned the piano, his loving parents were so proud that they fully supported him right through his education. And because of that, it served him well. During those awkward teenage years, Johnny remained an even-tempered boy who didn't shout, swear, smoke or drink. But he had no issues with those who did. He didn't fight, start fires, steal and had no sexual issues. In fact, although a late bloomer, he later became celibate fearing the rampant rise of sexual diseases and seeing women more as companions than conquests. And being an only child with very few friends, he had a puppy who he adored. Although lonely, Johnny was a good talker and a keen listener. He was a regular churchgoer and an enthusiastic student at the school science club who was fascinated by machinery and chemistry. And as a bright but easily bored boy, although he won prizes in geography and divinity, his grades were not good. So for fear of upsetting his proud parents and eager to please them, he forged his schoolmaster's handwriting, creating glowing reports which fooled everyone. Upon graduation, Johnny failed to pass his school certificate. But John and Emily Haig weren't upset or even disappointed. Yes, he had lied, but they had raised a good, decent and moral boy of above-average intelligence, who dressed well, spoke politely and dreamed of a career in engineering. And no matter what path he took in life, they knew that their little boy would always excel at his chosen profession. And yet, for the first 27 years of his life, as a decent human being, Johnny had achieved a lot. 
but as one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, John George Haig had done nothing. 12 years and six deaths later, Johnny Haig, the entrepreneur, who lived in a Kensington hotel, drove a red sports car, wore silk shorts under his sharp suits, and was a tad miffed at not only missing luncheon, but also tiffin, tea, and now his dindins, sat in interview room three of Chelsea Police Station, flanked by Barrett, Symes, and Webb. Three shabbily dressed coppers, whose hand-rolled tobacco, stale sweaty suits, and cheap shop-bought aftershave was an insult to his more refined sense of smell. And as Johnny candidly talked, the police listened. I've made some statements to you about the disappearance of Mrs. Duran Deacon. The truth is, we left the hotel together, and she was inveigled by me into going to Crawley, having taken her into the storeroom at Leopold Road. While she was examining some paper for use as fingernails, I shot her in the back of the head. Throughout, although he was polite, calm and controlled, his boyish face beamed with a cockiness, as being pleased as punch at his own superiority over the police. He knew he could tell them everything, but without a body, they could prove nothing. From his teens to his twenties, Johnny worked as a salesman at Shell Max, a sign company rep, and as an insurance clerk, where he learned the final legal points of higher purchase agreements. But finding the long hours, hard graft and tiny wage unrewarding, his work record was only described as satisfactory. And why wouldn't it? As an easily distracted dreamer, with wide eyes and high hopes, his commute from his sparse, starchy and silent home to the bustling city of Leeds in the grip of the Roaring Twenties must have felt like the boy had entered a brave new world. A sensual orgy of dizzying delights, fizzing with fast cars, fine foods, gangster films and filthy lucre. Everything he had been denied. But as a teetotal celibate, Johnny didn't descend into debauchery as his only vice was pride. Fueled by middle-class aspirations, he dressed in smart suits, neat like his mother made, but topped off with a flash of red as a tiny act of rebellion. He brought a wireless radio. Shocking, I know. But he didn't besmirch his ears by listening to anything vulgar like jazz, only classical, which his father approved of. Yes, he secretly owned three cars, a Ford 8, a Talbot Dirac, and an Alfa Romeo, which he and his pals raced from Leeds to Scarborough. Okay, he dabbled a tad at the horse track, but only because he loved the thought of making oodles of cash without the hard graft. And yes, okay, although he was never charged, his dismissal from the sign company did coincide with the theft of a petty cash box, which he apologised for, and his father paid back all of the missing monies. So considering how his life had begun, surely these were nothing but little acts of indiscretion, which were forgiven and forgotten. 
On the 6th of July, 1934, a little later than most men, 27-year-old Johnny Haig married 23-year-old Beatrice Hamer, a pretty blonde waitress he had met just a few months prior. But this wasn't love. Johnny didn't feel love. After a quickie service at Bridlington Registry Office, with no wedding bells, no bridesmaids, no cards, no confetti, no readings, no religion, one witness and no parents, Johnny and Beatrice Haig moved into their own home in Leeds. But this wasn't a marriage. Johnny didn't do marriage. Although a pleasant companion, Beatrice was more of a convenience to free the boy from the austere shackles of his stifling parents. And although, as they always did, his parents forgave him, being burdened by responsibilities, his wife was now little more than an impediment to his dreams of prosperity. Scraping by on a paltry three pounds a week was no way for a budding entrepreneur to live. How on earth could Johnny be seen as a real go-getter when he never stayed in swanky hotels, rarely ate prime rib steak, his suits were so last season, his blasted bank balance was always bled dry, and he only owned three sports cars. No, this would not do. Not by a long shot. On the 28th of June 1934, just one week before his wedding, having perfected the skill of forging a stranger's handwriting and mastering the finer legal points of higher purchase agreements, in a simple scam where they resold rented cars on forged papers, Johnny and two cohorts defrauded three insurance firms out of £960, almost £60,000 today. In his eyes, it was a victimless crime. I mean, he wasn't snatching old ladies' handbags, breaking into young mum's homes, or scaring the bejesus out of bank tellers with dicky hearts. He didn't use a gun, he used a pen. And let's not forget, no one was hurt and nobody died. So really, what harm was done? On the 22nd of November 1934, at Leeds Assizes, John George Haig was found guilty of three counts of fraud, with six similar counts taken into consideration, and he was sentenced to 15 months in prison. After six months, Beatrice gave birth to a baby girl, who she named Pauline. But as a penniless single mother, with a convict spouse, who made no provisions for his wife and his alleged child, so unable to cope, Pauline was put up for adoption. Life in prison was fine. The bedding was subpar, the uniform was baggy, and the food was far from filet mignon. But Johnny made do by keeping his cell neat, his mind busy, his nose clean, and devoting his time to prayer, education, and silent reflection. And although an amiable little fellow, whose charm made him an easily likable sort. Johnny wasn't a lowlife like the common criminals he had been banged up with. No, his crimes had style, finesse, and just like him, they were superior in every way. His only remorse was for everything that he had lost. 
his money, his suits, his cars, and his reputation. On the 8th of December 1935, Johnny was released from prison. Having unburdened himself of a wife and a child, he returned home to his loving parents, who would always support him through each test and trial, always forgave him for every sin and sentence, and always stood by him, even as, shamefully, their convict son was excommunicated from the Plymouth Brethren. And with his faith shattered, his heart stabbed, and his pockets empty, John George Haig had reached rock bottom. Throughout his full and rather frank confession, in the stale, smoky confines of interview room three, as the self-confessed serial killer spoke, Barrett, Symes and Webb listened intently. But never once did little Johnny Haig stutter, flush or tremble. His voice never raised, and sweat never broke, as the only emotion he showed was a cocky little grin as he corrected the copper's mistakes. It seemed odd, didn't it? that a former member of the Plymouth Brethren would smoke Galois from something as ostentatious as an 18-carat gold cigarette box, that a fastidiously neat man would allow odd singe marks to sully the underside wrists of his tailored overcoat, and that such a slight and unassuming man could physically kill six people and leave no evidence with which to convict him. And yet Haig ploughed on. Mrs. Duran Deacon no longer exists. She has disappeared completely, and no trace of her can ever be found. Deliberately leaving a prolonged pause, so Detective Inspector Webb could ask the obvious. Well, what happened to her? Hay grinned. I destroyed her with acid. You will find the sludge, all that remains of her, and my storeroom in Leopold Road. Every trace has gone. I did the same with the Hendersons and the McSwans. Which posed the police with a real conundrum. If a body no longer exists, how can you prove a murder if the murdered is only missing? Post-prison, Johnny felt like a lost cause. He was too old to be living at home, too sinful to be welcomed back to the church, too solitary to be part of a criminal gang, and as a late twenties, unemployed ex-con, dossing in his elderly parents' home in a small mining town in the north of England. Now, more than ever, he was further away from his dream. In 1936, eager for a fresh start, Johnny moved to London. Dabbling in a few honest, but ultimately unrewarding jobs, including as a clerk and chauffeur for a good egg called William Donald McSwan Jr., but hating the long hours, hard graft and tiny wage, once again, Johnny felt the lure of easy money. On the 24th of November 1937, Haig was convicted of seven counts of fraud, having forged legal papers, and stole £3,200, almost £210,000 today. His confidence was high, his scheme was clever, and his crime was brazen. But his mistake wasn't greed, but speed, as on the letterhead, 
he had misspelled the town of Guildford. Johnny was sentenced to four years in Wandsworth Prison. Wealth was within a fingertip's touch. Yes, being banged up was a minor setback. But once again, his near-perfect plan was scuppered by those unpredictable irritants. People. As whatever he stole, they would always want it back. But how could he make sure that they would never notice the missing monies? Released on license on the 13th of August 1940, the 31-year-old repeat offender returned to London only to see a ravaged smoking city. Its blackened, crumbling buildings silhouetted by a red fiery sea as if he had entered the bowels of hell. As night after night, his whole world was bombed by the Luftwaffe. Buildings were destroyed, homes were smashed, lives were decimated, and as a ragged and hungry Hague slept in a flea-infested Doss house, the strict conditions of his early release was like walking a legal tightrope. Ex-con Johnny had to go straight, as one little slip and he was back in the slammer. Only, like Leeds as a boy, although London was a true den of debauchery, still being a teetotal celibate, with dreams of becoming an entrepreneur, even at wartime, London was a city of extremes, with blackouts, bomb craters and Bentleys, furs, famine and finger food, destitution, decadence and death. As part of his parole, Johnny did his bit for the war effort by being conscripted as a fire watcher, alerting the fire brigade to any art treasures at risk of destruction by the Blitz. Again, the hours were long, the work was hard, and as he protected masterpieces worth a mint, he did it all for a paltry wage. And like most citizens, his wartime experience was not without its horrors. In a regular letter to his beloved parents, Johnny wrote, On one occasion, whilst on fire-watching duty, I was talking to a Red Cross nurse at the warden's post. The sirens shrieked, bombs dropped, and the nurse and I moved off to our places of duty. Suddenly, in a moment of premonition, I knew that a bomb would fall close by, so I dodged into a doorway and awaited the inevitable crash. It came with a horrifying shriek, and as I staggered up, bruised and bewildered, a head rolled against my foot. The nurse, who but a few moments before had been gay and full of life, high ideals and a sense of duty, had in one instant been swept into eternity. But as shocking as it was, the reality was this. In wartime, sometimes people just disappear. Johnny did his damnedest to go straight and to make his parents proud. On and off for four years, he worked as a clerk for his old pal William McSwan, whose kindness always saw him through, and did odd jobs for a solid chap called Alan Stevens, a mechanical engineer and owner of the Union Road Tool and Garage Company in Crawley, working at his workshop, clearing out his storeroom, and living in his family home with his wife Evelyn and his daughter Barbara. Johnny had landed on his feet, Except, putting up, getting by, 
and making do was never Johnny's style. So on the 11th of June 1941, once again, he was sentenced to 21 months hard labour. But not for a cunningly superior scam, having embezzled an impossible fortune, ripped from the mega-rich, having faultlessly defrauded the insured, using a litany of faultless forgeries. No. Strapped for cash, Johnny had illegally flogged off an old fridge, five bunk beds, and 60 yards of cloth. And in prison once again, because of these crimes, he had been branded a petty criminal. On the 17th of September 1943, he was released on license and went back to square one. Or so it seemed. When I first discovered that there were easier ways of making a living, I did not ask myself whether I was doing right or wrong. That seemed to be irrelevant. I merely said, that is what I wish to do. And as a means lay within my power, that was what I decided. If you're going to go wrong, go wrong in a big way. Go after women, rich old women who like a bit of flattery. That's your market. By his release, Johnny had spent six of his 34 years in several prisons, including Wandsworth, Dartmoor, Chelmsford and Lincoln. Lincoln. Ah, Lincoln. The worst prison I have ever known is Lincoln. I resented it most bitterly, and made up my mind, after that, that there would be no more inside for me. But unlike the petty pilferers and common criminals who frittered the endless hours, days and weeks by pinching snout, blagging sweets, and smuggling smokes in a stash of old socks, Johnny dreamed big. As his cellmate in Chelmsford later said, He said he'd aim for half a million quid before he'd quit. But everyone just took that as a joke. Another bunk buddy said, He kept gabbling on about this corpus delicti. So that's what we named him. Corpus delicti, an 18th century English law, also known as the bloodless murder law, states that without a body, there can be no crime. But around these two little words, his master plan was born. The problem was, it's almost impossible to make a body completely disappear. Prisoner Haig was an unassuming little fellow, petite, polite and polished, who devoted his time inside to being an altar boy and organist in the chapel. He starched his shirts, he made his bed, and always with a please and a thank you, Johnny was charm personified. So being a bright but easily bored boy who once excelled in the school science club, he was given a much lauded job in the prison workshop. When he wasn't spending long hours cutting fresh tin into prison cutlery, zinc plating handles onto kitchen pans, and cleaning rusted iron with sulfuric acid, which stripped his soft skin to a red raw mess and stunk his nose with noxious choking odours. That aside, the prison workshop was the perfect place to fill the endless hours as his restless hands and curious mind fixed, fiddled and tinkered. Here, his entrepreneurial spirit truly flourished, 
And yet, never once did he make, mold, or even invent a single thing that would make his fortune. No, but it was here that he devised the final piece of his grand plan. In 1944, John George Haig was back on the streets. A small, thin ex-con with a weedy frame, a boyish face, a feminine voice, a charming smile, and a truly ludicrous dream to become rich. Only he had no money, no home, no skills, and he knew almost no one. For the first 27 years of his life, unassuming little Johnny Haig was little more than a lost boy eager to please his parents. Over the next eight years, he was nothing but a failed petty fraudster who at every turn had lost everything. He didn't drink, smoke or swear. He wasn't violent or sadistic. But between 1944 and 1945, he would befriend six wealthy persons, the Swan family, the Hendersons and Mrs. Duran Deacon. And with near-perfect precision, he would assume their identities, inherit their estates, drain their assets, and all six victims would mysteriously vanish, leaving no trace with which to convict him. John George Haig would become one of Britain's most infamous serial killers. And it all began with a dead mouse. As much as little Johnny Haig loved machinery and chemistry, he despised the zinc plater in the prison workshop, as with a backlog of pans to plate, it was his pride at stake. But as a small stoic man who never let his emotions sully his day, with little more than a frown and a huff, he set about fixing the fault. The usual suspect was the woefully inadequate electromagnetic bell, a laughably basic battery easily a few decades beyond being obsolete, consisting of a zinc electrode in a copper-lined bath of sulfuric acid. Cracking open the ceramic case, Johnny cautiously waited for the caustic cloud of sulfur dioxide to settle, for fear of being blistered, burned or blinded. But reaching in to swap out the worn electrode from the thick condensation on the ceramic case's ceiling fell a single drop of acid. As the tiny toxic drip burned his skin, smoking and searing, as feeding off his limbs abundant liquid, the acid slowly ate away at his fingers' flesh. Swiftly dunking his scorched digit into cold water, as the intense pain ceased, Johnny thought, thank heavens it was only a drop. But what if it wasn't? The mouse was already dead. Being small and skinny, its lifeless body lay within a whisker of a field of juicy berries. But trapped inside the prison's grey walls, it had starved to death. And Johnny sympathised. Holding the cold little mouse by its limp tail, Johnny carefully placed it in a glass jar. And as he dipped a ladle into the battery's ceramic case, 
and filled the glass jar to the brim with sulfuric acid. The dead mouse began to fizz, bubble, smoke and boil, until the transparent fluid was nothing but a cloudy black broth. Johnny stirred it a bit, but felt no resistance. So tipping the sizzling glass into the sink, amongst the dark fizzing stew, there was no hair, skin, bones or teeth. Within minutes, the little mouse had been reduced to an unrecognisable gloop, and as its viscous remains slid down the drain and out into the sewer, it was gone forever, as if the mouse had never existed. But a mouse is just a mouse. On the 17th of September 1943, John George Haig was released from Lincoln Prison, a dreadful little place chock full of perverts, pontis and pilferers. And although, shamefully, his last stretch inside was due to him pinching a fridge, yes, his license forbade any acts of criminality, but never again would he risk his freedom. Well, not for anything so petty. No, this time, Johnny had money and murder on his mind. By early 1944, having left the halfway house at St. James Street, which was tormentingly close to Pall Mall, Buckingham Palace and the Ritz, Johnny worked hard, earned an honest wage, and lived in the Crawley home of his old pal, Alan Stevens. Times were tough. The economy was bleak, rationing was strict, law-abiding bods freely bought goods on the black market, and the Nazis were poised just 80 miles from the English coast. And yet, unwilling to make a mistake, Johnny had gone straight. Hardly cutting the figure of an entrepreneur, his aspirations had taken a back seat. As being a penniless nobody, who dressed in threadbare suits, it was impossible to lure a moneyed mark to their death. He knew Alan, of course, but why should he murder Alan? Yes, he liked him, his wife, and their young daughter, Barbara, who, let's not beat about the bush, was besotted by Johnny. And yes, Alan had some assets, a home, a workshop, and a storeroom on Leopold Road but his small income didn't amount to much. So setting aside their friendship, yes, he could kill Alan, but what would be the point? Shortly after the D-Day landings, with the tide of war still uncertain, as Alan struggled to make ends meet, Johnny did the decent thing for his old pal and moved out. Clutching nothing but three cheap suits, a few pounds, and a half-finished book of ration coupons, Johnny was all alone. And as a small, thin, but charming little chap who didn't curse, argue or fight, little Johnny Haig, the murder virgin, had to take a giant step from being a petty swindler to a cold-blooded killer. But knowing no one, his first victim would be an old friend, whose death would be far from perfect. 
so unnerving are the similarities that Johnny Haig and Mac McSwan could have been brothers. Born two years and two weeks apart, William Donald McSwan was the only child of Donald and Amy, a clerk and a housewife. 33 years old, married a few months, but faithful to their old age. Both raised as Protestants, Mac adopted his parents' Presbyterian faith, having devoted his life to the Lord and shunning all extravagances. So living a simple life, the McSwans were always neat, clean and frugal. And although they never socialised, in a tight-knit but introverted family, they never wished to offend anyone. All Donald and Amy ever wanted was to serve God and to do the best for their son. As a bright but easily distracted boy, Mac won a scholarship to Eton, a prestigious boarding school for academically gifted boys, where he excelled in science and religion. Just like Johnny, Mac was quite a solitary figure, and being sensitive, timid and shy, although his achievement pleased his proud parents, he missed his mum and longed for the days when he could finally come home. Johnny and Mac were similar in so many ways. Height, weight, size and age. They both had boyish looks, a sweet nature, a childlike innocence and were tied by choice to their parents' reins. They disliked dancing, were afraid of the dark, rarely drank and were practically celibate. With a love of science, a passion for engineering, a desire to become an entrepreneur and a deep-seated frustration that they might never reach their true potential. And although the two men wouldn't meet for a few decades, whereas Johnny would become the older, wiser, and more worldly brother, being almost mouse-like, although Mac had a true business sense, as the little brother Johnny never had, Mac remained in his shadow. It was almost as if, from the moment they were born, that fate was guiding them together. They were two sweet but sensitive boys with no siblings or close friends who would become like brothers. And yet, as one became rich, the other became poor. One would be famous, the other would be invisible. One would stay alive as the other would die. And as one was buried, the other would never be found. Soon the killer would meet his first victim. But just like Johnny, Mac harbored a guilty secret. As a very practically minded adult, Mac was physically and socially awkward. A skinny, pigeon-chested mess of clumsy suits, insipid ties and tweed waistcoats, like a relic of the wrong era. Burdened by a long, ill-fitting face, his features resembled a little boy with a costume box playing at being a grown-up. With bushy stuck-on eyebrows, a painted-on smile, a little moustache like it was held in place by a bit of coat hanger, and a thick mop of brown hair, side parted by his mum. Everything about him seemed mismatched. His dimpled chin resembled a feeble attempt to be rugged, his neat row of pocket pens was sullied by the ruddy complexion of an exasperated man, 
His nervous jerky motions belied a softly spoken voice, which, in a busy room, would be little more than a whisper. And set in a haunted face were two sad little eyes, adept at hiding his lies for fear of being found out. In 1932, aged 21, Max sought his independence. Just like the Hagues, his folks dreamed that their boy would marry a good woman and maybe have babies. Thankfully, he lacked Johnny's selfish callousness, which cruelly saw him dump a young wife and child to further his own fortune. But as a shy, kindly man, who love seemed to elude, marriage was not an option. So to give him his freedom, Mac moved into a shared house at 86 Tatchbrook Street in Pimlico, a few doors down from the family home. Two years later, after a short courtship, Mac got engaged to a lovely lady from Clacton called Dorothy Bailey. He liked her, she liked him, but neither loved each other. And although they remained good friends, the engagement lasted just a week. Mac wanted love, but it was a love which was forbidden. Frowned on by his faith, outlawed by the courts, and possibly but not improbably discreetly disguised from his doting parents, for almost all of his adult life, Mac kept his sexuality a secret. London's West End in the 1930s was a place where, although illegal and punishable by prison, in and around Soho, it hosted the Cave of the Golden Calf, London's first gay pub, the Caravan, London's first gay club, and waitresses at the Lion's Corner House Tea Room in Piccadilly Circus reserved a special section for homosexuals, which was known as the Lily Pond. So being gay was no biggie. Out was out. Only for a sweetie, as socially awkward as Mac, who dressed down, looked odd, and often mumbled, meeting someone new was always hard. As being both incredibly shy and illegally gay, as a prosperous landlord, a successful businessman, an engineer and an employer, Mac had a lot more than most men to lose. So his freedom didn't awaken his sexuality. If anything, it suppressed it. So being shy, throughout his life, his best friends would always be his mum, his dad and Johnny. William Donald McSwan was a true entrepreneur, bright but easily bored, private but productive, quiet but creative, who said very little but could turn his hand to any business and make it a success. In 1934, 25-year-old Mac opened his first pinball parlour in Westminster under the name of Max Automatics. And being small but profitable, it spawned several more in Shepherd's Bush in Waltham Green, where in December 1935, he would hire a charming guest con called Johnny Haig. His trusted friend, his surrogate sibling, his kindred spirit, his confidant, and much later, his killer. In interview room three of Chelsea Police Station, Johnny sat in the smoky, sweaty box surrounded by Webb, Symes and Barrett boasting with a coggy casualness about how easily he had killed his friend. William Donald McSwan, or Mac to me, I met in the Goat Tavern public house on Kensington High Street. 
From there we went to 79 Gloucester Road, where in the basement, which I'd rented, I hit him over the head with a cosh. He was dead within five minutes or so. I put him in a 40-gallon tank and disposed of him with acid. As before, I tipped the sludge down a manhole. And although he had practised, maybe not the luring, the trapping or the killing, but a small part of the disposal on a dead mouse, contrary to Johnny's gloating, the murder of Mac was far from perfect. In 1935, when Johnny met Mac, the two strikingly similar men struck up a close bond. And seeing his struggling pal in need of help, Mac became the one constant in Johnny's turbulent life, as a friendly face and an honest employer. But as the purveyor of three pinball parlours, Mac was only small fry. In 1944, by the time Johnny had left Lincoln Prison, Having learned two Latin words, made a mouse vanish, and concocted a ludicrous plan to murder for money, Mac, his oldest pal, his longest employer, and his surrogate sibling, had blossomed from a frustrated youth into a successful entrepreneur. With Mac's automatics having boomed from three to thirty pinball parlours, even though as a strict Presbyterian, who didn't live a lavish life, never flashed the cash, lived frugally in a small rented flat, and didn't look like he had two farthings to rub together. Johnny salivated at the wealthy businessman his old pal had become. As Mac, who rarely had more than a few pounds in his wallet, also owned a fleet of cars, a sweet shop in Mitcham, his own business called McSwan Engineering, with a lucrative wartime contract, four homes in Beckenham, Rains Park and Wimbledon, which he owned and rented out, as well as seven bank accounts, with savings and securities worth £1,100. In today's money, the assets of 33-year-old William Donald McSwan would be worth almost a quarter of a million pounds. By contrast, Johnny's bank account had just 26. But 1944 was a year of great uncertainty for Mac as although he'd always been a quiet, cautious and law-abiding man, who lived with the Lord in his heart, his life would take a very unusual turn. For whatever reason, during the last year of his life, just like Johnny in his moment of crisis, Mac had committed three petty crimes, including the theft of a box of lipsticks and a US Army torch. He served no prison time and received a small fine, but used four different addresses to evade his parole. That May, Mac moved into an all-male, all-gay house at 22 Kempsford Gardens in Earl's Court, and although it felt secure, it was far from safe. As the landlord was suspected of gross indecency, and his co-tenant was convicted of pimping out red boys, one of whom was a fair-haired teenager, who Mac, who had no siblings, claimed was his nephew. If caught, he could lose everything. One month later, as the D-Day landings saw miles of petrified men massacred, keen for fresh cannon fodder, the rules of conscription were changed. Although he had registered as a conscientious objector, 
with his reserved occupation revoked, which was the real reason his pinball company made aircraft parts, Mac would be ordered to fight. But as a painfully shy pacifist, who wouldn't last a single second in war, and whose own father, who was still haunted by the trauma, night terrors and tremors, having been conscripted in World War I, Mac failed to attend his call-up. And now, he was a deserter. Fearing arrest, Mac was poised to flee. Thankfully, he had a good friend like Johnny. William Donald McSwan was the perfect mark. An intensely private recluse, with everything to lose and nowhere to go. Who only trusted his parents and his close pal. And whose assets were easy pickings for a convicted fraudster and skillful forger who had mastered his victim's handwriting. I took his watch, his identity card, and any odds and ends before putting him in the tank. And although, when shown the signature he had forged, Johnny flippantly quipped, Yes, I signed McSwan's name. I remember I didn't make a good job of the signature. Instead of Donald, I wrote Ponald. Spelling was never his strong suit. So as the first two convictions had occurred, having hastily misspelled the victim's name and the town of Guildford, he should have learned his lesson, but didn't. And yet, as the first of his six supposedly perfect murders, the spelling wouldn't be his biggest mistake. Sulfuric. Being like brothers, just as Mac had been Johnny's rock during his years in and out of prison, now his closest pal could return the favour. As a recent convict, parolee and deserter, Mac was scared and feared arrest, but was soothed by an old hand as he looked to Johnny as his older, wiser brother. To lower his public profile, Mac sold his pinball business and settled a few unresolved affairs. Eager to find a discreet but profitable venture to dip into while he lay incommunicado, every day Mac and Johnny would meet to discuss the things which fueled their passion, like gadgets, patents and inventions. In a few short months, Johnny had ingratiated himself into every detail of Mac's life. So welcome was his presence felt, that although shy recluses who rarely went out, Mac's parents, Donald and Amy, treated Johnny to take tea with them in their rented top-floor flat at 45 Claverdon Street in Pimlico. He liked the McSwans. He liked them a lot. As a happily married, deeply religious and recently retired couple, who chose worship over wealth and would do anything for their only child. They reminded him of his own parents. Their clothes were neat, their home was sparse, and they lived a frugal existence on a meagre pension of just 22 shillings a week. To Johnny, they looked like they didn't have two farthings to rub together, but to Donald and Amy, they had everything, their family and their faith. Sensing their fear for their son, as the authorities closed in, he reassured the McSwans that he would do the very best to protect their boy. But in truth, Johnny was planning his murder. 
on Friday the 1st of September 1944. To lend his crime the air of middle-class respectability, Johnny had Alan Stevens' besotted daughter Barbara, who worked cheap, fast, and whose spelling was flawless, mock up a set of business cards and letterhead in the name of Union Group Engineering. A name easy to confuse with Alan's own business, the Union Road Tool and Garage Company, also based in Crawley. On Tuesday the 5th, a Taylor Lovegrove & Co., an estate agent at 79 Gloucester Road in South Kensington, Johnny leased a small, secluded, but self-contained basement under their offices for what he described as experimental work for a government contract. He paid by cheque, spending £7 of the £26 he had left to ensure it didn't bounce, and secured the tenancy starting that day using his own letterhead. On Thursday the 7th, from East London chemical supplier Canning & Co, he ordered a gallon of hydrochloric acid and 20 gallons of sulfuric. Two everyday chemicals for an engineering firm doing wartime work for the military. He paid £3.15 by cheque, confirmed it on his own letterhead, but listed his address not at 79 Gloucester Road, but as the War Emergency Liaison Centre at the nearby Onslow Court Hotel, and signed it J. Haig, Technical Liaison Officer. It was delivered the next day. With his preparations precise, his patience exemplary, and his grand plan vastly superior to anything ever conceived, although he was a murder virgin, Johnny knew that its execution would be perfection. On Saturday the 9th at 6pm, Johnny invited his old pal and potential business partner for a meal at their favourite pub, the Goat Tavern on Kensington High Street. Not one person in the pub witnessed them. But why would they? They were just two mild-mannered men in a busy pub, chatting about ventures, inventions, gadgets and Johnny's new company. As a teetotal, Johnny nursed a small sherry. But eager to cheer up his down-in-the-dumps chum, he treated Mac to a few wines. And as a slight man who rarely drank, it didn't take much to get him tipsy. At 8pm they left. The walk was short, the mood was good, and the street was busy. But no one spotted the two men, as side by side, smiling and slightly sozzled. Johnny led Mac via the more discreet back door in Stanhope Mews, and into the secluded basement at 79 Gloucester Road. William Donald McSwan was never seen again as his body would vanish completely. But the death and disposal of Mac didn't happen exactly how Johnny described it in his confession. Back in Chelsea Police Station, as little Johnny Haig cockily crowed about his six perfect murders to his captive audience of Webb, Barrett and Symes, the three coppers stayed silent as they listened and jotted down every boastful word, compiling a statement which they could later check and correct. William Donald McSwan met me at the Goat Tavern, and from there we went to the basement which I had rented. I hit him on the head with a cosh, 
He was dead within five minutes or so. I put him in a 40-gallon tank of acid and disposed of the sludge down a manhole. He made it sound so simple, so precise, and so superior. Sulfuric. But in truth, the murder virgin hadn't a clue. The basement at 79 Gloucester Road was small but secure. Three unfurnished rooms with thick brick walls, a concrete ceiling, a blocked-off stairs to the offices above, two locked doors and no windows. It was empty except for a few pinball machine parts, a length of lead pipe, a rusty hand axe, a manhole cover to the main drain, a Winchester of hydrochloric acid and two 10-gallon carboys of sulfuric. I hit him on the head with a kosh. And yet, with his description vague and shifting in different statements, from a table leg to a lead pipe to an axe, as no kosh was ever found, it's likely that being so focused on the money, the most important thing that Johnny forgot to bring was a murder weapon. He was dead within five minutes or so. For which we can only take his word. But five minutes is a long time, and although a blunt force, which can cause a smashed skull, a bleeding brain, swelling, spasms, paralysis, and a slow and agonizing death, makes Johnny sound callous, it also suggests that he was inept, either being too weak to whack hard, too feeble to finish him off, or maybe he missed. Eventually I stood up and was appalled by the presence of a corpse on my hands. So appalled was Johnny, that whether alive, dead, or dying, he stripped Mac of his personal possessions. I left the question of dealing with the corpse until the following day, and then I went home, where he slept soundly. I wondered how it was possible for me to have done something from which I would normally shrink. In fact... Johnny was so remorseful, having committed his first murder, that he woke late, had brunch, and sauntered into a car showroom. The question of disposal did not arise until later that evening. Then, the method appeared obvious, which we know was a lie, as using his own letterhead and checkbook, he had ordered the acid two days before. As perfect murders go, it wasn't great. Having had to improvise a murder weapon, which had only semi-successfully dispatched his victim, he soon realised that he had forgotten something equally vital. When I returned to the basement, I had to find a drum in which to place the body. Just like the glass jar in which he had once dissolved a mouse, only bigger. This was not difficult. I found one which had been used as a water butt in St. Stephen's churchyard. Stealing the 40-gallon steel drum from a house of God. To transport it back, I borrowed a handcart from a builder's yard. And all the while, probably whistling nonchalantly and saying, Oh, don't mind me. I'm only going to dissolve a corpse. Back in the basement, I put McSwan in the drum which was no mean feat, as with no hint of either of his victims being hacked apart, 
for a small weedy man to fit a five foot eight inch body into a three foot steel drum, he must have rolled it onto its side, hog tied the body, and slid it in back first, leaving the feet and hands poking out of the top. And all the while, praying that the weather worn drum was rust free, watertight, and had enough space for the body and at least 20 gallons of acid. I then considered the problem of getting the acid out of the carboy. Having blindly ordered enough acid to do the job, although the Winchester of hydrochloric arrived in a one-gallon glass bottle, which only weighed six pounds, the two ten-gallon carboys of sulfuric had to be delivered by two burly men in a truck, as each full bottle weighed 165 pounds, heavier than little Johnny Haig. This was something which hadn't occurred to me. I had to do it by bucket. Forgetting that, just four years before, a single drop had singed his finger. But still, he slopped 20 gallons of highly corrosive acid by hand, with no gloves, no apron and no mask. And as it had before, as the fat reacted with the acids, the body began to fizz, bubble and smoke. But a dead mouse has almost no fat. Whereas, although skinny, Mac had fat in abundance. So as his flesh was stripped, his fluids boiled, and the acids superheated the violently shaking drum, a thick soupy cloud of noxious gas and human vapours enveloped the airless and windowless basement. I hadn't thought to prepare for the fumes. I was badly choked and had to go out for fresh air. So coughing his lungs out and gasping for breath, Johnny dashed out into the quiet of Stanhope Mews, followed by a caustic fog of sulphur dioxide and the deadly stench of boiling fat. And yet, as the first of his six supposedly perfect murders, if you ignore his awful spelling, the lack of a murder weapon, a steel drum, a set of gloves and a gas mask, even this was not his biggest mistake. Eventually, the job was done, and I left the basement, locking the door behind me. As unlike the mouse, which was destroyed in 20 minutes, it took two full days until Mac was gone. Having given the dark fizzing broth a stir with a stick, subsequently, I poured the sludge down a manhole, conveniently situated in the basement. If anything remained, it will now be in whichever sewer flows into the sea. And as he tipped the thick black loop, which was once his pal, into a dark festering hole, he flushed the last remnants of their friendship down the drain. I experienced no remorse after the killing. None. With the dirty deed done, Johnny Haig, the one-time murderer and budding serial killer, had the carboys collected, the steel drum destroyed, the basement vacated, and having arrogantly celebrated Mac's murder by scrawling a small cross in his diary, he set about weaving an entirely believable story that the McSwan's only son was now in hiding. I explained that he had gone off to avoid his call-up and wrote a number of letters purporting to come from him, 
explaining the details of the disposition of the assets. As a convicted fraudster and forger, this would prove no problem, as he had Max's ID, his signature, several forged letters, a foolproof plan, and best of all, the complete and total trust of his victims next of kin. Between 1944 and 1949, John George Haig befriended six wealthy persons, starting with William Donald McSwan. He assumed his identity, inherited his estate, and drained his assets. All six victims would mysteriously vanish, and almost no one would notice. But Johnny had overlooked one small detail, which would prove to be his biggest mistake. William Donald McSwan, the prosperous landlord, successful businessman, engineer, and employer, didn't have a single penny or asset to his name. In fact, even with forged legal papers, whether dead or alive, Mac was worth nothing. Glug after glug, as little Johnny Haig wrestled to stop the 40-gallon steel drum from tipping over too far, the thick black gloop slowly slid into the festering sewer, hidden behind the locked back door in the basement of 79 Gloucester Road. As the smoking stew slopped up the rim, the acrid stench of acid stung the air, and the last of the shapeless fatty goo oozed down into the drain. Seeing no eyes, no hair and no skin, just a yellowy-green layer of ominous grease. This was all that remained of 33-year-old William Donald McSwan. And with the manhole cover replaced, Mac was gone. Being the first of six supposedly perfect murders, although this baby-faced psychopath would soon bloom into one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, in truth, as a murder virgin, Johnny had badly bungled his first slaying. But somehow, with his deathly cherry popped, he had got away with it. But as a convicted fraudster, experienced forger, and a charming liar, the rest would be textbook. I had known McSwan for some time, and on seeing his mother and father, I explained that he had gone off to avoid his call-up. I wrote a number of letters, purporting to be from him, and posted them in Glasgow and Edinburgh, explaining the various details of the deposition of assets, which included a company, four homes, and seven bank accounts, worth a quarter of a million pounds today. Last seen on Saturday the 9th of September 1944, as a shy, introverted recluse who hid in the shadows, Mac would be missed by nobody but his doting parents, who would swallow an entirely plausible story that their son, a shame-petty criminal, an absconded parolee, a conscription deserter, and a secret homosexual, with so much to lose, would flee the city, leaving his only friend in charge of his affairs. It seemed logical, so strung along by a sweet little man that Max saw as a sibling, 
and for fear of leading the police to their terrified child, his timid parents kept up the pretense that their boy was away on business, all the while unwittingly aiding his murderer. And just as Johnny had done with his body, the cocky little killer would strip, dissolve and dispose of all of Max's assets until not a single trace of him would ever be found. Only Mac didn't have a single penny or asset to his name. On Tuesday the 12th of September 1944, with the trifling little matter of a murder ticked off his to-do list, and Max's sludgy remains slowly slipping its way towards one of several sewer plants across the city, after a decent night's nap, a solid breakfast, and another quick peek at a rather nifty, dark green Armstrong Sidley saloon he had his eye on in a nearby car showroom, Johnny set about cleaning the basement. There was no real rush though. Having rented the premises for three months, he had barely used a week. The landlord, Albert Marshall of Taylor Lovegrove & Co, was fully aware that any odd whiffs emanating from the floor below was due to Johnny undertaking experimental work on a government contract. And so with Mac only missing, the police wouldn't find this crime scene until five years later. Being a filthy basement soiled by several previous tenants, Johnny's cleanup would be at best a slapdash affair. He swept a bit, moved some stuff, and tipped a bucket of hot soapy water. But as he disliked hard work, he really wasn't all that bothered, especially now that Max Money would soon be burning a hole in his pocket. Desperate to get the job done, Johnny had a scrap man destroy the steel drum. Canning and Co. collected the three empty bottles, and seeing no reason to waste £7 a month on a perfectly serviceable, but now seemingly pointless place for a murder, Johnny sublet the dingy basement to Ronald A. Fontana, a pleasant fellow who needed the storage space and was happy to be left a few odds and sods that Johnny really couldn't be bothered to bin. You know, stuff like pinball table legs, a length of lead pipe, and an old rusty axe. In an era where the best security was a signature, becoming Mac would be no biggie. Clutching the keys he had rifled from the corpse, Johnny helped himself to a few necessary knickknacks he had filched from Mac's ground floor flat at 22 Kempsford Gardens. A checkbook, a suitcase, some clothes, a nice pen, a few handwritten letters, a surprisingly good suit, and Mac's imperial typewriter. Not that this crime was as uncouth as a common burglary or as petty as pilfering a fridge. Johnny wouldn't stoop so low as to half-inch a few cheap trinkets to pawn off for a pound. No, these personal possessions had purpose. That aside, the banks and lawyers would be a pushover. A few stuffy old men easily duped by a legal letter and an ID, signed in an identical scrawl. But for his superior scheme to truly work, Johnny needed Mac's parents to believe that their beloved son wasn't dead, but that he had voluntarily disappeared. And yet, 
with a little bit of effort, a large dollop of knowledge, a few days spare, and several pounds in his dwindling bank account, Donald and Amy McSwan swallowed his whole. And Johnny did most of it by post. But how did it work and why? Well, the McSwans weren't all that different to his own parents, the Hagues. Born in a staunchly Presbyterian house in Menstrie, a small rural village in the Scottish lowlands snuck between Edinburgh and Glasgow, Donald McSwan was the second youngest of seven siblings, to Christina, a devoted housewife, and William, a bullman, who tested the qualities of whiskies at the local Glenochill Distillery, a skilled profession for a strict teetotaler, who was always punctual, steady and sober. As with the Hagues, Donald's upbringing was dictated by two core beliefs, the family and serving God. So the rest of his early life, you can probably guess. Raised to be neat, clean and polite, just like his son, Donald was a slightly undersized boy with a long weary face and a thin weedy frame, all barely held together by the expression of a haunted boy who fear had forced him to fold in on himself. As owing to an awkward birth, he walked with a stoop. And being just one in a family of nine, he never stood out, never felt loved, and always hid in the shadows. Surviving many brutally bitter winters, in an austere Victorian era, where only the rich had nest eggs to save them from the hard times ahead. Although the family were far from poor, their faith had taught them to spend frugally, live sparsely, waste nothing, and squirrel away whatever they could. Graduating from Menstrie Public School aged 13, young McSwan, who was Donald to his mum, never done, boy to his dad, never son, and to his friends, well, he didn't have any friends. Eager to appease his domineering father, who was never drunk, just disappointed, he earned a living at the distillery. But being swamped by three burly brothers, as a quiet bookish boy and the runt of the litter, who had learned to type and to take shorthand, instead of a tough sweaty manual job, Donald became a clerk. Throughout his life, Donald feared his father, and as an unmarried man, being denied his independence, although he had never set foot out of Menstrie, let alone to the nearby cities of Edinburgh or Glasgow, in 1908, aged 30, holding everything he owned, Donald fled his home, his county and his country, travelling 475 miles south to Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Whatever had caused this rift is unknown. He missed his family, he grieved their deaths, and he longed to be loved. But so deep was the pain that Donald never spoke or wrote to his parents ever again. That year, becoming the secretary at the Tunbridge Wells Spa Hotel, here he found work, a wage, a purpose, and a place to stay. As well as falling for the woman, he would love until his dying day. 
Amy Beatrice Page was a waitress. Just like Donald, she was slight, quiet and neat. A painfully shy Presbyterian, who spoke in a tiny whisper, stood with a timid stance and always avoided eye contact. And yet with Donald as her manager, she found love, support, strength and someone who made her feel safe. Donald and Amy were a very decent couple, moral but modest, fiercely loyal but easily forgettable. They never kissed in public, yet always held each other's hand. They never wore bright colours, except for a little flower he popped into her lapel. And as two shy recluses, they said and did very little, but were always happiest together in their own home away from the dangers of strangers. In October 1910, Donald and Amy fell pregnant. It was a blissfully jubilant time for the two solitary lovers, who one day dreamed of becoming a family. But conceived by mistake and born out of wedlock, that month, Donald and Amy hastily became the McSwans, having married in secret. On the 12th of May 1911, William Donald McSwan was born. A small but healthy boy, who as their only child, was always loved and hugged, given everything and denied nothing, raised well but never spoilt. Being different, he was never forced to be anything but himself. And no matter what, the McSwans would do anything to protect their beloved boy. Whether he was alive, dead or allegedly in hiding and yet it was their lives which shaped the future of Mac McSwan for better and for worse in December 1915 with World War I raging just as it would for his son quarter of a century later 36 year old Donald was conscripted to fight with the Royal Fusiliers on the French front line. As a small, weak, terrified pacifist with a stoop, whose religion forbade him to kill, and who cried every night that he didn't see his wife and baby, it's nothing short of a miracle that being little more than cannon fodder, Donald survived more than two years in the trenches. But in February 1918, his luck ran out. Being blasted by a mortar shell, his only physical injury was a small scar over his right eye. But the bloody war had taken its toll on Donald, and for the rest of his life, traumatised and plagued by night terrors, his right hand would perpetually shake with an involuntary tremor, a sad souvenir of the so-called Great War. Demobbed in July 1918, although he was hailed a hero, and was given two medals. Donald swore that from this day onwards, he and his family would never be apart ever again. For the next 25 years, Donald, Amy and William McSwan spoke daily, were parted rarely and always wrote. But all that changed the day they met Johnny Haig. His subterfuge was simple. I explained to them that Mac had gone off to avoid his call-up. A 
dilemma Donald understood, which was why he supported his son's decision to do whatever he could do to avoid the draft. I wrote a number of letters purporting to be from him. The typed ones matched his typewriter. The signature was a perfect match, and the handwriting on the postcards mirrored his style, tone and grammar. And having posted them in Glasgow and Edinburgh, the two nearest cities to Donald's hometown, he explained the various details of the deposition of assets, which were to be left to his old pal Johnny. And because of that, the retired recluses were reassured by their boy's words that he was fine, well, and he would be home soon. Unaware that he was already dead and dissolved. As per his letters, on the 18th of September 1944, one week after the murder, Donald arrived at his son's office to inform the workshop's owner that Mac was out of town on business indefinitely. On the 5th of September, Donald paid his son's rent at 22 Kempsford Gardens. He ended the tenancy and removed his boy's belongings, noting the items that Mac must have taken with him a checkbook, a suitcase, a nice pen, a handful of letters, his best suit and his imperial typewriter. The McSwans totally believed this logical ruse, that their beloved son had vanished by choice, was laying low, and for fear of alerting the police to his whereabouts, they never reported him missing. All the while, giving his killer ample time to destroy evidence assume his identity and steal his assets. Johnny's plan to murder for money was perfect. Sort of. The McSwans were so like the Hagues. Two devoted parents, neat, shy and reclusive, who would do anything to protect their boy. But as Mac's life collapsed, as much as he trusted his old pal, Johnny was too arrogant to see his fatal mistake. Mac liked Johnny as a brother, but he wasn't family. On the 5th of November 1943, just as ex-con Johnny was seeking his first victim having been released from Lincoln Prison, with the war draft looming closer, Mac did what many servicemen and civilians in wartime did and visited his bank, where he signed a power of attorney granting financial control of his affairs to the only people he trusted without question. His parents. Everything, from his bank accounts, to his stocks, to his shares and his company. Everything but his homes. Again, Johnny had made another fatal mistake. Only this one was obvious. Just like his own parents, and to some extent Mac himself, Donald and Amy lived a very frugal life in a small, sparsely furnished top floor flat in a less desirable part of town, rented weekly for just one pound. And as a solitary couple who didn't own a car, didn't socialize or go on holiday, they scraped by on a meager pension of 22 shillings a week. To Johnny, they looked like they didn't have two farthings to rub together. But to Donald and Amy, they had everything. Their family, their faith, 
and their fortune. Technically, Mac didn't have a single penny or asset to his name, but his family did. They always had. As their faith had taught them to live sparsely, waste nothing, and squirrel away their nest eggs, all three McSwans jointly owned and rented out the four homes in Beckenham, Wimbledon and Rains Park. So with total control over their son's assets, as much as Johnny's letters lied, it was all for nothing. Johnny's bank account was empty. Of his last £26, the basement had cost seven quid, the assets three, and with a few shillings for sundries like letterheads, business cards, and his victim's last meal. In total, Mac's murder had cost him a tenner. And although, anticipating a rather wonderful windfall, he had slightly prematurely toasted his success with a teeny tiny spending spree of a few suits from Hawks of Savile Row, exquisite dindins at the Punch Bowl Club, good seats for classical concertos at the Albert Hall, a few big bets on the GGs and doggies at the White City Stadium, and several decent snoozes on soft linen sheets at the upmarket Onslow Court Hotel for the princely sum of £5 and one shilling a week, plus 10% service charge, obviously. But what irked him the most was the endless expense of chugging back and forth from London to Edinburgh to Glasgow to post a few forged letters from the McSwan's dead son. Now a needless charade, which having cruelly teased him with a taste of the good life and left a nifty little Armstrong Sidley saloon stuck in the showroom, this whole grand plan had bled him dry. On the 12th of January 1945, aided by a stolen checkbook, a forged signature and a devious little dollop of duping Mac's dad, Johnny siphoned off monies from one of Mac's accounts, a scam he would repeat on the 3rd of February and the 8th of March, draining £210, almost £8,300 today. Admittedly, this pitiful little sum would only tide him over for a bit. But it wasn't a quarter of a million pounds, which was rightfully his. If only he had a way to make Donald and Amy McSwan vanish completely. I had known the McSwans for several years. I took them separately to the basement, disposing of them in the same way as their son. As before, he made it sound so simple, so precise and so superior but with no plan to become a serial killer, and believing that he was made for life, having offed a big mark like Mac, with all of the tools of his murderous deeds either destroyed or disposed of, Johnny would have to start from scratch. And although he was no longer a murder virgin, whereas the first of his six supposedly perfect murders was laughably inept, the second and third would be totally absurd. It's safe to say that little Johnny Haig hadn't learned his lessons. Having leased the basement at 79 Gloucester Road to Ronald Fontana, 
his perfect execution site had gone. So being unwilling to totally give it up, the two men agreed to split it. Ronald had the front room for his storage, and separated by a thin wall and a single door, Johnny had the back rooms for his murders. Still, at least he had sole access to the drain, so that was something. On the 10th of February, Johnny ordered a Winchester of hydrochloric and three 10-gallon carboys of sulfuric. But with his funds dry, the check bounced, so the usually swift delivery of the bottles were delayed by a further two weeks, and Johnny's company had a black mark placed against their name. Having scrapped the drum and needing two, Johnny borrowed a set of old, rusty and warped but hopefully watertight 40-gallon steel drums of a local builder's merchant. Having almost scorched his hands and suffocated on the fumes, this time he would wear protection, only being too cheap to buy, too lazy to borrow, and too superior to steal. He made do with an old tatty trench coat, a pair of leather gloves, and a makeshift gas mask made from cardboard and string. Again, having forgotten how impossible it was for a 150-pound man to decant a 165-pound carboy into a four-foot-high steel drum, which took two men to lift, once again, he opted to slop out the lethal liquid by bucket. And yes, as before, he failed to purchase possibly the most important thing, a murder weapon. So instead the same shoddy crap he left lying around would have to suffice. A pinball table leg, a length of lead pipe, or an old hand axe. With the preparations for the double murder of the McSwans done and dusted, now all Johnny had to do was to lure this frail old couple into his lair, just as he had done with her son. But once again, he had overlooked one small detail which would prove to be his biggest mistake. Mac McSwan liked Johnny. He trusted him. But Donald and Amy did not. Over the next four months, Johnny struggled to speak to, let alone see the McSwans. As two shy and reclusive homebodies, who rarely went out, invited nobody in, and mostly communicated by letter, sometimes by phone, and once in a blue moon, on the communal doorstep at 45 Claverton Street. Even if he could lure them out, which he couldn't, be invited in, which he wasn't, or break in, which he couldn't, to murder them in their own home. Without a car or any transport, how would he cart two dead bodies from a top-floor flat in Pimlico to his basement, three miles away in South Kensington. No, Johnny was well and truly stuck. And then, it got worse. Unable to afford the extortionate train fare to Scotland, Johnny had to stop writing the letters. When Ronald Fontana moved out, for safety's sake, Johnny had to use his last penny to take up the full lease on the basement. And being broke, like a hobo with nowhere to go, 
he was forced to bunk down in the dark, dingy basement. Asleep on an old mattress, surrounded by two steel drums, gathering dust. And then, it got even worse. On Monday the 30th of April 1945, with Hitler dead, the war over, and conscription to be abolished, as people cheered in the streets that their loved ones would soon be coming home, as Mac had been missing for nine months, and silent for three, the McSwans began to ask the question, where was our boy? And then, his whole plan collapsed. On Wednesday the 6th of June, Albert Marshall, a state agent at Taylor Lovegrove & Co., one floor above, gave Johnny one month's notice to vacate the basement. With no money left, no time to waste, and no other options, it was now or never. But how do you lure two shy recluses out of their home? On the evening of Monday the 2nd of July 1945, I separately took to the basement the father Donald and the mother Amy, disposing of them in exactly the same way as their son. As a frail elderly couple, one a petite lady with a tiny whisper, a timid stance and a tiny flower in her lapel, and the other an awkward battle-scarred veteran with a haunted face, a painful stoop and a perpetually trembling hand, were easy kills. Coshed, hogtied, and drowned in sulfuric acid, as the twin drums shook, boiled, and the dirty fizzing stew stripped their hands, feet, and faces to the bone, Johnny stirred the deathly brew, his trench coat, leather gloves, and makeshift gas mask doing the job. And although we know that they both died that day, it's still uncertain whether they were dead, alive, or dying. As side by side, he dissolved their bodies in acid. But being an uncaring sort of chap, it's possible. Two days later, all that remained was a black acrid gloop. Glug after glug, as little Johnny Haig wrestled to stop the steel drums from tipping over too far, and the hot, gooey residue of the elderly recluses slid into the dark, festering sewer behind the locked black door in the basement of 79 Gloucester Road. After nine months of patiently waiting, praying and hoping, finally, Donald and Amy McSwan were reunited with their boy. As per his tenancy, on the 6th of July 1945, Johnny vacated the premises. He had the empty carboys collected, and should they ever be needed, the drums relocated to Alan Stevens' yard at number 2 Leopold Road. Eleven days later, rightly assuming the banks and lawyers to be a pushover, Turner McFarlane Macintosh & Co., a firm of Glasgow solicitors, were asked to draw up a power of attorney for William Donald McSwan, Donald McSwan, and Amy Beatrice McSwan, assigning full control of their assets to John George Haig. 
ID was produced. All three signatures matched, and having checked the documents, the solicitor would and did confirm that they were legal, because in his eyes, they were. Selling off the business, their homes, and all stocks, savings, shares, and war bonds. In total, from these three murders, Johnny's pocket would be flush with enough cash to last a lifetime. With his bank balance brimming, his belly full of fine foods, and his suit stylish once again, as a dapper, sophisticated bachelor who was finally living the life that he deserved and had earned, Johnny became a permanent resident in room 404 of the exclusive Onslow Court Hotel, outside of which he had parked his brand new, rather nifty, dark green Armstrong Sidley Saloon. And now, his dream was complete. Johnny Haig was a wealthy middle-class man, living a lavish life in an affluent part of town. Yes, to get there, he had slaughtered three people, plundered their assets, dissolved their corpses, and poured their sludge down into the sewer. But as no one had reported them missing, where was the problem? In the end, it took very little effort to lure the McSwans into his lair. In fact, it was simple. Johnny had made many mistakes in his first three murders, the biggest being to assume that he knew his victims better than they knew themselves. And although the Hagues were very similar to the McSwans, by watching them, Johnny knew that they all had one fatal flaw, which he did not. Love. As two doting parents, who would do anything to protect their boy, having swallowed an entirely plausible story that their only son, a shamed petty criminal, a conscription deserter, and a secret homosexual, was missing... After three months of silence, when Johnny showed them proof of life in the basement of 79 Gloucester Road, they only saw what they wanted to see. The handwriting was a match, the date was recent, the postmark was local, and the loving words on the postcard reassured his worried parents that their boy was fine, well, and he would be home soon. By the summer of 1945, having made enough money to last a lifetime, the killing spree of John George Haig, one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, should have come to an end. But it didn't. So If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. William, Donald and Amy McSwan have gone to Scotland. Or Ireland. Or was it America? It was one or the other. I mean, does it really matter? Johnny's ruse was simple. A shy, reclusive family who were never reckless, impulsive, and rarely went out, had unexpectedly fled the country in the dead of night, leaving behind everything they had ever owned, from their homes, businesses, stocks, and savings, to their teacups on the table, their bread in the basket, and their clothes in the cupboard. But somehow, it had worked. The McSwans were an intensely private, tightly knit, and deeply loyal family who kept to themselves. So with no close relatives or concerned family, no one reported them missing. Armed with a set of keys, a forged letter and a power of attorney, over the next few months, Johnny paid the remaining rent on their top floor flat, settled any bills, collected the post, tipped the milkman, topped up their gas meter with coins, and even paid Mac's monthly subscription to the Amusement Caterers Association. On paper, the McSwans still existed, just not in person. But as clever and calculated as Johnny was, being so uncaring and eager to fritter away this family's fortune, he was also brazen and callous. And having let himself in, rifled through the drawers and flogged off the dour clothes and sparse furnishings of the recently deceased, Johnny sold everything 
and before he sold all four of their houses. Cocky in his confidence, he even collected the monthly rents, in person, having signed the rent book himself. As for the McSwan's pitiful pension of a piffling 22 shillings per week, he left that as it wasn't worth his time. Within a few months, having stolen the equivalent of £210,000, Johnny had dissolved every single asset of the McSwan family until just like their corpses, nothing existed. By August 1945, having made enough money to last a lifetime, the killing spree of John George Haig, one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, should have come to an end. But it didn't. Johnny Haig was jubilant. Yes, 1944 had been a right dog's dinner, but with 45 going great guns, 46 being a real pip, and although Britain was in the grip of post-war austerity, for Johnny, 1947 was looking to be a bit of a doozy. One month after he had casually flushed the whole McSwan family down the sewer, billowing with banknotes, Johnny permanently moved into the rather upmarket Onslow Court Hotel. Room 404 was his manpad, an exclusive serviced room with Indian linen sheets on the soft-sprung mattress, an armchair for entertaining his chums, a wardrobe full of his tailored suits, a drawer for his dress shirts, silk shorts, ties and hankies, so Johnny the entrepreneur always looked dapper. And at his desk, a fountain pen, a diary, several books on mechanics, and an imperial typewriter. Catering to his every whim, the bellboy polished his shoes, the maid cleaned his room, the concierge collected his dry cleaning, and the night porter emptied his waste bin. So with nothing to do but to choose between breakfast, luncheon, tiffin, high tea, drinkies, din-dins, or a little late supper, he busied himself by mingling in the dining room with the wealthy, the cultured, the respected, and the widowed. That said, as much as South Kensington's most eligible bachelor loved to tootle about town in his dark green Armstrong Sidley saloon, the bright glint of its waxed body, the subtle squeak of its leather seats, the luxurious whiff of a walnut dash, and the solid rumble of its 20-horsepower engine really turned some heads. Unfortunately, he felt it was a bit fuddy-duddy for a real go-getter, so his new wheels would have to go. But it wasn't all play, you know. Johnny's company, Union Group Engineering, was up and running. Established to give legitimacy to his purchase of high quantities of lethal acids, now as a legitimate businessman, he used his money to develop ideas with inventors. Okay, he lied a little bit. His business address was a hotel room. His title of technical liaison officer was self-appointed. The BSc initials after his name related to a phony degree. And he had no training as an engineer. But then again, half of success is confidence, right? 
1945, he invested in a needle threader. In 1946, he dabbled in toy rocking horses made from tubular steel. And in 1947, having invested £225 in Hursley Products Limited to develop a silent jackhammer and a battery-powered fan, the boss, Edward Jones, appointed Johnny as nominal director. Eager to make a go of it, Johnny didn't take a wage. But instead, he relished the role's credibility, the extra petrol rations, and keen to develop his own inventions, having purchased it off Alan Stevens, Edward gave Johnny access to a small storeroom in Crawley, based at number two, Leopold Road. So had the sadistic serial killer stopped his killing spree to become a serial investor? Well, yes, he had. Ex-con Johnny was gone, as having realised his full potential and blossomed into a respected company director who lived well, dressed fine and spoke properly. Moving in middle-class circles, this gave him the perfect opportunity to meet like-minded people like Archibald and Rosalie Henderson. I met the Hendersons by answering an advertisement for the sale of their property at 22 Ladbroke Square. They were staying at the Metropole Hotel in Brighton. I took Dr Henderson to the storeroom at Leopold Road, disposed of him by shooting him in the head, and I put him in a tank of acid. Simple. Of course... The Hendersons were not part of his original plan. Johnny wasn't a cold-blooded killer. He was a cool-headed businessman. But sometimes, try as you might, life has other ideas. Johnny liked Archie. They were so similar. But whereas Mac was the little boy that Johnny once was... Archie was the older brother he aspired to be. Archibald Henderson was born in Glasgow on the 20th of July 1897, 11 years before Johnny. And although identical in many ways, Archie's upbringing was a blueprint to how Johnny wished his life had been. Raised in the prosperous Scottish suburb of Partick, to a housewife mother and a banker father, Unlike Johnny, Archie was proper middle class, not an uppity coal miner's son with lofty aspirations. As part-time Presbyterians, who embraced a faith when it suited them, Archie's early years weren't silent and stuffy like the Plymouth Brethren, but were bright and joyous affairs, full of music, colour, laughter and life. And as intensely social people, they were liked, trusted and welcomed. Educated at the affluent high school of Glasgow, just like Johnny, Archie was gifted a great education. But as a daydreamer who wasn't academically blessed, although he loved science and mechanics, he struggled. Conversely, whereas the undersized boy in the bow tie, with no siblings and friends, saw school as a very solitary experience, being tall, sporty and a big personality, Archie loved school, had oodles of chums, and unlike this only child, 
he would never be lonely, as by his side was his big sister Ethel. Archie had everything that Johnny did not, money, style, class and status. And as a strapping six-footer, with chiselled features, an athletic physique and a very manly moustache, although unconventionally handsome, with sticky-out ears, pursed lips and a stern stare that glared over the dark bags of his world-weary eyes. Being a real man, Archie was someone that little Johnny Haig literally looked up to. But whereas Johnny was always patient, sober and distant, as a deeply unhappy man with unfulfilled dreams of living a kept life to a wealthy wife, Archie was often angry, violent and drunk. As a conscript, Private Henderson served in World War I. Unlike Johnny, he didn't dodge the draft. But being a lowly squaddy, with little respect for rank, routine or regiment, he was never promoted. And yet, he held on to his medals, his gas mask and his Enfield Mark I service revolver as souvenirs. Demobbed in 1919, ten years and several tries later, he qualified as a doctor from Glasgow University. But being superior, stubborn and self-important, with a dreadful bedside manner and a style which many doctors described as clumsy and inept, instead of patience, he preferred golf, gambling and girls. Archie was unpredictable. Being crippled by spondylitis, a stiffness of the back, kyphosis, a curvature of the spine, and intermittent spasms in his left shoulder. As a debilitating and degenerative illness, his moody demeanour was made worse as he was forced to temper it with drink and prescription drugs. Just like Johnny, Archie hated hard work. When I first discovered there were easier ways to make a living, I did not ask myself whether I was doing right or wrong. I merely said, this is what I wish to do. Go after women. Rich old women who like a bit of flattery. That's your market. And although Johnny was yet to bag himself a biggie, Archie was way ahead of him. On the 18th of January 1930, 33-year-old Archie married 29-year-old Frances Dorothy Orr, a wealthy socialite with several lavish pads in Mayfair, Knightsbridge and Kensington, who spoiled him with shirts from Harrods, suits from Savile Row and a bright red Lagonda sports car, as well as many expensive trinkets, including an 18-carat gold cigarette box and lighter engraved with her name, Dorothy. Squandering his wife's wealth, Archie quit work to live a truly hedonistic life of drinking, gambling and womanising. As a heartless cheat who spent wildly, racked up debts and shagged copiously, to Archie, she wasn't a wife, she was a meal ticket. As heavy drinkers, their South Kensington suite at number three Grenville Place echoed to her volatile screams. As always cursing, fighting and living in fear of his fists, Dorothy sunk into a deep depression. 
and for the last few months of their marriage, being drugged up and drunk, crying and catatonic, she lay there, bedbound and broken, cuddling Pat, her red setter puppy. Not that Archie really gave a rat's ass, as with his wife wasted on scotch and sleeping pills which he had prescribed, he openly flaunted his torrid affair with their friend and neighbour, Rosalie Ahrens. On the 20th of April 1937, simply to escape his abuse, Dorothy moved into a private suite at the Bailey Hotel at 140 Gloucester Road. Three days later, she died. And although her family suspected foul play at the hands of Dr. Henderson, her money-grabbing husband, her death was declared natural causes, her body was cremated, and Archie inherited her entire estate. A total of £20,000, almost £800,000 today. Johnny liked, admired, and respected Archie. He was the older brother he never had, the only pal he ever wanted, and the affluent businessman he aspired to be. So it must have been a real bummer to have to bump off Archie. But hey-ho, that's the way it goes. By August 1947, Two years had passed since Johnny had slopped the hot mess of the McSwans down into the festering sewer. He was a new man now, respectable, honest and successful, with a company to run, a full life to lead and enough money to last a lifetime. Or so he thought. During the post-war austerity, although he'd invested in several inventions with Edward Jones, a silent jackhammer, a battery-powered fan, a needle threader, and he had dabbled in the mass production of a rocking horse made of tubular steel. Nothing came of them. It was nobody's fault. It happens. But being shamefully shy on his rent at Onslow Court, forced to sell his dark green Armstrong Sidley, which left just two cars in his rented garage, a sporty Alvis and a sedate Saloon 12, and with his good name sullied, Owing £353 to five bookies, having placed a few bad bets at the Doggies and the Gigi's. So with every last penny shaken out of the McSwans, once again, Johnny was one month away from being broke. So, somebody had to die. He knew Edward Jones, of course, but why should he murder Edward? Yes, he liked him, and yes, he had some assets. A tidy house, a small engineering firm called Hursley Products, and a storeroom at number 2 Leopold Road, which as co-director, Johnny, the enthusiastic but painfully unskilled inventor, would turn into a little workshop. But just like his old pal Alan Stevens, his income didn't amount to much. So setting aside their friendship... Yes, he could kill Edward, but what would be the point? No, Johnny needed money. A lot of money. So he had to murder Archie. 
the day he met Dr. Archibald Henderson. Having bungled the first three supposedly perfect murders, Johnny started making a mental checklist to ensure that the fourth would be just that. Perfect. I found the Hendersons interesting and amusing. We went about a good deal together, and they liked me to play to them. I sat at their piano, interpreting the classics. The Hendersons talked a lot about themselves, and from many conversations, I learned a great deal about them. On the 6th of October 1938, one year after his wife's abrupt death, Archie married his mistress, Rosalie Ahrens. Logistically, this was a tad inconvenient, as with the silly cow, legally now his next of kin, she had unwittingly volunteered herself to be Johnny's fifth victim. Which was a bit of a waste of his time, to be honest. But having done a double drum murder before, and as a nervous lady, who was often drunk, drugged and bedbound, in a style strangely similar to his first wife, should she die, the police would probably blame Archie. And with their closest relatives, being his sister Ethel Norman in Jersey, and her brother Arnold Berlin in Manchester, they couldn't affect the power of attorney, so legally it would be a breeze. Asset-wise, Archie had frittered away his dead wife's estate, but as an impulsive investor who had recently sold his doctor's practice in Upminster, a 20-bedroomed guest house at 20 Ladbrook Square, and still owned a flat and a toy shop called the Dolls Hospital, all worth £600,000 today, they would, most definitely, be worth killing. Rosalie was a depressed neurotic with drink and drug issues, a history of secret affairs, wild spending sprees, and a suspicion of sadomasochistic sex. Archie was a crippled, pill-popping alcoholic, with a violent temper, a succession of mistresses, and a string of bad debts. So although a very social couple, their impromptu vanishing wouldn't be unexpected, with it attributed either to suicide, stress, self-abuse, or starting a new life together, as they had discussed, in the South African city of Durban. Luring the Hendersons to their deaths would be a piece of cake, as a budding entrepreneur, eager to make a mint without lifting a finger, who was crippled by a bad back and wore a monocle to read, Archie's bait was obvious. And as for Rosalie, a bedbound, chronically depressed drunk, he had easily pried the reclusive McSwans out of their little hidey hole. So how hard could she be? His one major ball ache was that he never thought he'd be back here again, murdering for money. And besides, everything was gone. So, for the second time in two and a half years, he would have to rebuild his murder basement from scratch. As co-director of Hursley Products, Edward Jones had given Johnny access to number two Leopold Road. It wasn't much, but as a small, isolated storeroom, 30 yards from a remote side road in an industrial part of Crawley, with thick brick walls, 
no immediate neighbours, a messy yard chock full of indecipherable scrap, and hidden behind a six-foot-high fence. Although it had no drain, it was private and perfect. Sadly, the two steel drums he had shipped to Allen's had been scrapped, as a caustic mix of rain and acid had caused them to irreparably rust. But having spied two in a nearby yard, he blagged both for just an ounce of tobacco and called in a freebie from his welder pal Thomas Davies to fix any holes and to fit both with a lid to limit the leakage of toxic gases. So actually, they were better than the old drums. With a black mark against his company's name, which slightly sullied his business terms with Canning & Co., he ordered a Winchester of hydrochloric and three 10-gallon carboys of sulfuric from chemical wholesaler A. White & Sons, at the cheaper price of £4, 8 shillings and 7 pence. As for the rest, the previous occupier had left behind a stirrup pump, so instead of slopping out £535 of highly corrosive acid by bucket, Johnny could now safely fill up the drums without any risk to himself. Also being gifted a thick rubber apron and a pair of rubber gauntlets, from neck to knees and fingers to forearm, Johnny was now fully protected from any acrid splashes, and all at no extra cost. And as a frequent visitor to the Henderson's flat over their Dole's Hospital toy shop at 16 Doors Road, Johnny swiped Archie's army-issue respirator, so it was goodbye to the old gas mask made from cardboard and string, and saying farewell to the pinball table leg, the length of lead pipe, and the old rusty hand axe. He pilfered his Enfield Mark I service revolver and an envelope of 11 38 caliber bullets. So to be honest... Starting from scratch was all pretty simple, actually. On Friday the 5th of February 1948, in the workshop of Thomas Davies, Johnny dangled a tasty morsel, a rocking horse made of tubular steel. As a toy shop owner, Archie loved it. Being short-sighted, he popped on his monocle to inspect it, and with his back aching, he winced as he bent over the bench. But with no sale made, Archie left empty-handed, Thomas was annoyed, but for Johnny, it was fine. On Saturday the 6th, with Rosalie unwell and eager to recuperate, the Hendersons packed three suitcases, all exquisitely marked with a monogrammed H, into their red Lagonda, and accompanied by Pat, they drove from their flat in Fulham, to the more isolated Kingsgate Hotel in Broadstairs, Kent. Away from their social life, routine, and anyone who knew them. On Tuesday the 10th, with the Kingsgate being too quiet, they moved to the Metropole Hotel in Brighton, just 21 miles from Leopold Road. Having checked in for six nights, with Rosalie unwell, The housekeeper brought her a hot water bottle and a portable radiator. The maid delivered her meals to her bed and asked to walk her elderly dog, 
the night porter noticed a vast array of medicines on her bedside table. As in the evenings, the waiter served Archie and a small boyish man with a little moustache. As a busy hotel, which catered to their every whim, the staff noticed nothing suspicious. And why would they? On the morning of Thursday the 12th of February 1948, with Rosalie still very much bedbound, Archie left for a business meeting. No one was concerned, no one reported him missing, and he was never seen alive, ever again. The Hendersons were staying at the Metropole Hotel in Brighton. I took Dr. Henderson to the storeroom at Leopold Road. I disposed of him by shooting him in the head with his own revolver, and I put him in a tank of acid. But was it really that simple? Well, yes, it was. Convinced to leave behind his rather ostentatious red Lagonda sports car, as planned, Archie caught the train from Brighton. He was picked up at Crawley Station by an unidentified man in a slightly drab Saloon 12 and sedately driven to an industrial part of town, down a remote road and into a secluded yard, hidden behind a six-foot-high fence and the closed double gates at number two Leopold Road. Being mid-morning and mid-week, of the few neighbours whose premises surrounded the street, with their own busy lives to lead, neither the laundress, the metal presser or the stable yard owner saw, heard or smelled anything out of the ordinary from this engineer's workshop. As Johnny pulled in and parked up his car inside the private yard, his new pal Archie got out. It was an odd little place. Around the fences was a scruffy sea of tangled trash. Tires, boxes and mechanical bits and bobs. And dead centre was a laughably tiny box-like storeroom, barely the size of Archie's bathroom. With one door, two windows and a reassuring sign which read Hursley Products. It was just as Johnny had described. Small, simple but suitable for an ambitious entrepreneur. So led in by his pal and potential business partner, although Archie's bad back made his walk slow and laborious, Johnny took his time. He was in no rush, as death comes to us all eventually. And to some, sooner than most. Unlocking the only door with the only key to the storeroom only Johnny had access to, Archie sensed no danger, no threat, and no suspicion. As in broad daylight, he entered the small brick-lined room of a keen inventor who dabbled in plastics. As expected, hung on a hook on the whitewashed walls was a thick rubber apron and two rubber gauntlets. Nearby were three carboys of unidentified liquid two steel drums, and flush against the walls was a waist-high bench, on which something drew his attention. Popping his monocle to his dark-circled eye to inspect an invention 
his pallet placed before him. A six-foot Archie craned over the three-foot bench. He winced a little as a familiar sharp pain shot up his stiff spine, causing his movements to slow to a crawl. But again, Johnny was in no rush. This was all part of his superior plan. As with his victim being short-sighted and partially crippled, this gave Johnny ample time as from behind he took aim with Archie's own revolver. In a single shot, his head exploded as at close range, the 38 caliber bullet ripped through his skull, brain and face as a fine mist of mucus and blood spattered down the whitewashed wall causing his monocle to crack as his half-mangled head thumped against the bench. And the lifeless and almost faceless body of 50-year-old Archibald Henderson slumped in a heap on the dusty floor, dead. It was brazen to shoot a man in broad daylight between two windows. But Johnny was unfazed. With one down and one to go, Pockets were emptied, limbs were hogtied, and the body was slid into the drum. But before the acid, the disposal, and the death of Rosalie, which is a mere formality, really was a huge waste of his time. Before all that, he had lunch. Johnny liked, admired, and respected Archie. He was the older brother he never had, the only pal he ever wanted, and the affluent businessman he aspired to be. And although it should have been a real bummer to bump off his buddy, actually, it wasn't all that bad. So with his body dissolved, his assets legally swiped, and the man himself having vanished completely, Johnny would literally become Archie. Everything would now be his, from his home, his bank, his bags and his business, to his shirts from Harrods, his suits from Savile Row, and his 18-carat gold cigarette box engraved with his dead wife's name. He took everything, even his blue silk dressing gown, exquisitely marked as everything was with a monogrammed H. Everything he liked, wanted, or was fond of was taken, even Pat, his elderly red setter. And as Johnny drove the corpse's bright red Lagonda through the West End, Although the open-top sports car ruffled his immaculately parted hair, the throaty roar of its 30-horsepower engine and the high-pitched squeal of its racing wheels announced to the city that Johnny Haig had arrived. In his diary, Johnny marked the occasion. I wrote an A for Archie and the sign of the cross. He came to his end before midday. Unlike the McSwans, his death had been a doddle. Everything had gone swimmingly. Archie was dead. Rosalie was next. His tools worked well. The storeroom was secure. The body was hidden. The assets would soon be legally his. And the scrambled eggs were smashing. So why should the rest of it be anything but simple? The murder of Rosalie Henderson should have been easy-peasy. 
but something would go horribly wrong. To Johnny, murder had become almost routine. An unemotional moment, as common as withdrawing cash, only with a simple transfer between accounts, sullied by that tiresome annoyance. People. I disposed of Dr. Henderson in the storeroom at Leopold Road by shooting him in the head, and I put him in a tank of acid. With the doctor dead, the acid should rightfully be his. But in his way, was a wife. Rosalie Henderson was a feisty, angry neurotic, doped upon sleeping pills, drowsy with drink, and bed-bound in a Brighton hotel, who Johnny, a man her own brother had warned her against, would have to lure out on the flimsy excuse that her now-dead husband, who she'd threatened to divorce, was sick. Driven at night, in a strange car, to an isolated yard, this paranoid lady, with a lifelong fear of the dark, would be led inside an odd little shed, illuminated by a single bulb, only to find no Archie. Instead, she would see three acid bottles, two steel drums, one empty, one full, a cracked monocle, a spatter of blood, a rubber apron, a set of gauntlets, and in Johnny's hand, her dead husband's revolver. I went back to Brighton and brought up Mrs. Henderson on the pretext that her husband was ill. I shot her in the storeroom and put her in another tank and disposed of her with acid. But was it really that simple? Well, yes, it was. In his diary, Johnny marked the moment. A is for Archie, R is for Rose. I didn't deal with her until just before midnight. And yet, so trivial were their deaths. Had it not been for that note, he'd have forgotten. Yes, I suppose it must have been on the 12th, when I got rid of them. The killing spree of John George Haig, one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, was complete. As expected, his fourth murder was perfect. His fifth was easy peasy and with the police unaware that anyone was missing the rest would be textbook but once again having overlooked yet another small and seemingly insignificant detail something would go horribly wrong the Hendersons were gone and bit by bit, as Johnny picked it apart, so were their assets. In the case of Dr. Henderson, I removed his cigarette case and gold watch, and from his wife, her wedding and engagement rings. Before their bodies were reduced to a dark smouldering goo, Johnny pawned off a diamond and sapphire ring, a gold watch, a gold chain, a set of gold studs, a pewter tea set, and a silver cigarette case to Horace Bull, a jeweller in Horsham, for £292. Johnny gave a false name and address, and all of the pieces were either sold on, broken up, 
or smelted down. Having sidled up in a red Lagonda, which burst with boxes, golf bags and suitcases, all monogrammed with a large flashy H, Johnny stashed the property of two old pals who have gone to South Africa into the garage of Thomas Davies, some of which, at their request, he would dip into and flog off. Being post-war, with money tight, essentials rationed, and the black market a bit of a grey area, the average bod didn't give two hoots where a case full of hooky goods came from. So with a nod, a wink, and no questions asked, unaware that they were destroying evidence, Thomas bought some golf clubs and glassware, Leonard and Gladys Bevan had five pairs of ladies' shoes and a lambswool coat, and Barbara Stevens, Alan's daughter and Johnny's sort of girlfriend, got first dibs on a green linen dress, a mustard-coloured blouse, and a nearly new bathing suit. And yes, some of it may have been a little scorched, but even Johnny's coat had acid burns on the cuffs, so beggars can't be choosers. Bits and bobs he stored in the garage to sell later, but all of the best stuff he kept for himself at the Onslow Court Hotel. Of course, it wasn't weird at all that he wore a dead man's suits, shirts, ties, cuffs, belts and collars. That he proudly pranced about his bedroom, all peacock-like, in the deceased silk robe and slippers. Or that Johnny played at being a doctor by coveting a few odd objects from Archie's life. Like his hip flask, briefcase, stethoscope, kidney bowls, a brass thermometer, an inkstand and two metal plates marked Archibald Henderson. No, this wasn't strange at all, as with the couple now dead and gone. All of this stuff was his stuff. Okay, maybe Johnny was a tad careless to sell off his victim's stuff, to dress in his victim's clothes, to drive in his victim's car, to take his victim's dog and to sign his victim's name on his victim's checks at his victim's bank. But as before, having laid a cunning subterfuge, Johnny had covered his tracks. One hour after her murder, having adopted a high-pitched voice, Johnny called the Metropole Hotel, and pretending to be Rosalie, he stated that the couple had unexpectedly gone away, and concerned for his well-being, he asked the night porter to feed and walk Pat, their elderly red setter. Four days later, clutching a seemingly legal-looking letter, supposedly signed by the Hendersons, which gave this random stranger total authority to do as he pleased, I paid their hotel bill, collected their dog, and took their luggage to Dawes Road. With their account settled, the animal gone, the room vacated, and the luggage collected, the hotel had no reason to be concerned. Being fond of Pat, Johnny cared for the old dog in his hotel room, where he was loved, brushed, and fed on meat rations he had brought having queued up for hours at the butcher's. He even took the almost blind dog to an eye specialist. But with pets being against the hotel's rules, Pat was put into kennels. With the old ploy practically foolproof, as before, 
I kept the relatives quiet by sending letters purporting to come from the Hendersons to Rosalie's brother Arnold and Archie's sister Ethel. Having stolen their passports, identity cards, driving licenses and marriage certificate, I acquired the forged deeds of transfer for 16 Doors Road. This time, with no spelling mistakes or dodgy signatures. And once again, he collected the rent in person, having introduced himself as the tenant's new landlord. Oh yes, the murders were a doddle, the subterfuge was a done deal, and soon it would be time for tea, toast and scrambled egg. Yum. I mean, it had all worked so well before, so why change a winning formula? Besides, with Ethel busy moving house in Jersey, and having swallowed a semi-believable story that Archie and Rosalie were moving to Durban, she wouldn't be aware that anything was amiss until a year later. As for the disposal, well, Johnny had got the knack now, and as the fifth person he had liquefied in less than five years, it was all very simple. So in just 48 hours, the Hendersons went from guts to gloop. Step one. A single shot, at close range, blasted in the back of the head. Rosalie dropped like a sack of spuds. The walls muffled the noise. The dark disguised the killing. The fence hid the storeroom. Step two. Stripped of stuff, rings, ID card, keys, cash. Hogtied with twine, as the limbs were still floppy, she was slid inside a 40-gallon drum and as a slight eight-stoner, easily propped upright. Note to self. Find a phone box. Call the Metropole Hotel. Hello, Rosalie here. Could you take Pat for a walkies? Then lock the door. Lights off. Home for a snooze and a hearty breakfast. Step three, apron on, gauntlets on, gas mask on, with the carboy still and the bucket bedamned. Stirrup pump 30 gallons of sulfuric until the drums are four-fifths full. Windows open and lid on. Step four, first 10 minutes. Acid turns black as hair, eyes and flesh are stripped. Next 30 minutes, acid boils as it reacts with the blood and fat. Drum rattles a bit, then settles. Quick stir with a rod, then a cup of tea. After three hours, muscles, tendons and cartilage are gone, but the skeleton remains. Second note to self, drums are three foot high. The McSwans and Rosalie were five foot eight maximum, but Archie was six foot. So with his left foot sticking out and not dissolved. Hello, White and Son. I'd like to order a fourth carboy of acid. An extra cost, a slight delay, but job done. Step five. Two days later, with the drums cooled, the gloop tepid, and a greasy yellow sludge on top with a black smoky soup beneath. Give it a quick stir. Check there's no big bits, but a few small fragments is fine. Sadly, with no drain at Leopold Road, both drums are dragged into the yard, the goo is tipped amongst the trash and car oil and soaked into the ground. It's not ideal, but the gloop is gone. 
and as always, a quick clean-up followed. Apron up, gauntlets away, gas masks stowed, carboys collected, ID and victim stuff stashed, gun back to hotel room, give the drums a rinse out with acid as fat tends to cling to the sides, dump both drums in the yard, and after a quick wipe down with a rag, as blood's a dead giveaway, return the storeroom keys back to Edward. Easy peasy. A thorough murder investigation headed up by Detective Inspector Guy Mahon and Home Office pathologist Dr. Keith Simpson wouldn't be conducted until more than a year later, after Johnny's confession. But by then, very little of the McSwans or the Hendersons would be found. In the last half a decade, the basement at 79 Gloucester Road had changed hands several times. So in terms of cast iron proof, it was useless. Any personal items belonging to the five victims could have been legally acquired at any time, which Johnny certainly had the paperwork to prove. And as a full year had passed, any evidence relating to the Hendersons at Leopold Road was purely circumstantial. There would be no witnesses. Nobody on Leopold Road saw, heard or smelt anything strange coming from this engineer's workshop. Between Brighton and Crawley, nobody spotted Johnny with either of the Hendersons that day. And there would be no ballistics, no bullets, no holes, no casings. And although a firearms specialist recreated the shot, shielded by brick walls, it sounded just like a muffled pop. Being a dirty, oily storeroom, the investigators were unable to pull a single fingerprint from any surface. His cleanup was slapdash, but using a wet rag, he wiped away any trace of the Henderson's blood. Of their personal possessions, the cracked monocle was proven to be Archie's, as well as the gas mask, the revolver, and the hat box marked with a monogrammed H, as well as his and his wife's IDs, licenses, marriage certificate and passports, all of which were legally acquired, and none of which was a body. And although forensics found a beechwood rod with one end disintegrated, two rusted steel drums, a stained apron and gauntlets, and a series of zigzag marks in the soil as two heavy drums were dragged from the storeroom to an ominous pool of yellowy-green grease, this suggested that something had been dissolved in acid, but this wasn't unusual for an inventor who experimented in plastics. The police would find no hard evidence that the Hendersons were at number 2 Leopold Road. And as you can't fingerprint sludge, Johnny was right. Corpus delicti. With no body, there can be no crime. Only, having overlooked another small detail, once again, the killer risked his capture. I found the Hendersons interesting and amusing. They talked a lot about themselves, and from many conversations I learned a great deal about them. To Johnny, 
whereas Archie was the prize, Rosalie was a mere formality, who could be rubbed out just as easily as he erased her name. And as he listened to her life story, some bits he stored, but most bits he binned. Rosalie Mercy Berlin, known as Rose, was born on the 11th of September 1907, as the eldest of two siblings, with a younger brother, Arnold. Ah, boring, boring, boring. To Edith, an English housewife. Ah, snooze. And Adolf, a naturalised German dentist. Ah, a dentist. Bingo. Described as a neurotic, paranoid hypochondriac, Rose's nervousness began when an uncaring nanny thought that the best way to keep a chatty child quiet was to tell the tot terrifying tales and to lock her in a pitch-black room. A childhood trauma, which resulted in years of therapy, terror and tranquilizers. A dull little detail there. Hmm, but like Archie's bad back and poor eyesight, possibly useful. Educated at Pendleton High School, Rose trained as a typist at the Pittman College and began a short career as a secretary. Ah, secretary, secretary, shorthand typist, modelled once but mostly unemployed. Ah, so she's got no money, her dad's a financial risk, her mum's just a housewife, and her brother runs a crappy seaside hotel in Blackpool. So basically, they're all worth nothing. Damn it. Right, Rosalie, 37 years old, 5 foot 7 and 8 stone. In short, sad, false and pointless. Typical. In 1931, she married Rudolf Ehren. Ah, an engineer, an inventor and founder of the Ehren Motor Company. Hmm. Now, start of the war, he suspected of being a Nazi, arrested, interred, divorced and later deported back to Germany. Shame. Meanwhile, Rudolph and Rosalie live opposite Archie and Dorothy, which we know. Archie and Rosalie have an affair, which we know. Rosalie taunts Dorothy with this knowledge, which we didn't know. Nasty bitch. Archie gets Rosalie pregnant. Uh-huh. Illegally aborts the baby. Uh-huh. In Dorothy's sitting room, uh-huh. Dorothy leaves Archie, and three days later, she dies suspiciously. Hmm. Maybe I should consider blackmail. This follows eight years of lies, drink, affairs, blah 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 and hemorrhaging cash. Oh, don't I know the feeling. The Hendersons sell off their very expensive and tastefully decorated 20-bedroomed house at 22 Ladbrook Square, which is where they met me. The rest, we know. Only he didn't. Johnny only cared about one thing. Money. As for people, his only concern was what they were worth. So anyone whose money wasn't worth stealing, he disregarded as irrelevant. A big mistake he had made once before with the McSwans. And now with Rose Henderson. It is said that every rose has its thorn, and his name was Arnold Berlin. On the 3rd of September 1947, 
being broke and keen to weasel his way into the life of a man that he thought was a wealthy mark. I met the Hendersons by answering an advertisement offering the sale of 22 Ladbroke Square, a house they had purchased for £4,600, would ultimately sell for £8,700 to cover their debts. And yet, much to the befuddlement of Rose's younger brother, Johnny declared, Oh, that's too cheap. But if you'll accept £10,500, that's a deal. As a no-nonsense Blackpool hotelier, attuned to spotting an unsavoury sort, too poor to stump up a pound to pay his bill, Arnold later said of Johnny, Of the scores of stupid people I've ever met, I've just been introduced to the greatest of them all. Later advising Rosalie, When you meet a man who talks like that, you should run for your life. And although she kept a bit of a distance, Archie did not. The last time Arnold saw his sister was on the 1st of February 1948, in their flat above the Dole's Hospital toy shop at 16 Dawes Road. As being asset rich, but cash poor, having loaned the Hendersons £160 to furnish the flat, Archie repaid the loan that day by cheque. The last time Arnold spoke to his sister was by phone a few days before her death. She was unwell, bedbound, but fine. I kept the relatives quiet by sending letters purporting to come from the Hendersons. And as a skilled forger, who over the previous months had mastered their handwriting, spelling, style and tone, once again, his cunning subterfuge began. On Saturday the 14th of February, on headed paper, swiped from the Metropole Hotel, Johnny penned a letter from Archie to Daisy Roundtree manageress of the Dole's Hospital toy shop. It read, Dear Daisy, Mrs. Henderson and I are going away for two or three months, first to Scotland and later later abroad. abroad. In my absence, Mr. Haig will look after my affairs. I am closing the shop. Mr. Haig will keep you for a few days to enable him to take stock. Mrs. Mrs. Henderson and I send you kind regards and hope hope to see you again again when when we return. return. Yours sincerely, Archibald Henderson. Received on Tuesday the 17th, Daisy was shocked. As in short, she had been sacked. No thank you, no warning, no reason, and no goodbye. Just gone. An uncharacteristically callous dismissal from a man she liked. That same day, Arnold dropped in as the check had bounced. Shocked at Daisy's distress, and the fact that his sister's affairs were being handled by a stranger, he told Daisy to do nothing till I speak to them. Unable to contact the Hendersons, he traced Johnny to the Onslow Court Hotel. Here, Haig, what's all this about then? Caught off guard by the nosy northern blighter, Johnny reassured this nobody that he had nothing to be concerned about. The Hendersons merely owed him a rather sizable debt, and he had the paperwork to prove it, don't you know? 
but being immune to Johnny's charms. And seeing this little louse as a bit too smooth, Arnold was suspicious. It was odd. Usually Johnny's letters worked like a treat. But then again, the reclusive McSwans weren't the recalcitrant Arnold Berlin. So if he wanted proof, he would get proof. In the form of a forged contract from Archie to Johnny, backdated eight days before their deaths, and signed by the dead. To J.G. Haig, I acknowledge receipt of £2,500 on part loan for three months. For repayment, I hereby, I hereby assign to you the stock at 16 Doors Road, a standard saloon, a lacquered bedroom suite, and other items on inventory to come. This leaves a value of £1,500 outstanding, and should I require the loan after the 3rd of May 1948, I will assign to you the freehold of 16 Doors Road. Signed, Archibald Henderson, witnessed by Rose Henderson. Would Arnold buy this ploy? He didn't know. So as a second layer of lies to bed in his bullshit, Johnny penned a letter from Rose to himself, dotting it with hints as to why they had unexpectedly departed. Written on Metropole Hotel no paper, with Brighton crossed out, and Edinburgh scrawled underneath. The letter read, My dear Mr. Haig, just to let you know that we are all right as you must be wondering when you are going to hear from us. Archie, Archie is, quite is quite different, different now, and you, you won't believe it, he is laying off the bottle. He has at last come to his senses, and realises that I could not carry on as we were doing. We are going to Aberdeen tomorrow, for a day or two, and shall be calling at my brother Arnold's on the way back. Archie won't get in touch with him, because he sent him a bad cheque. It was good of you to help him, I do appreciate it, and I hope you are having luck with the stock at Dawes Road. I shall look forward to seeing you again before we go to South Africa. I hope Pat is not giving you any trouble. Please give my kind regards to Daisy. Yours sincerely, R. Henderson. Not subtle, but effective. Sadly, as Pat's blindness was incurable, being placed in kennels, Although he was genuinely concerned about the dog's welfare, it resulted in the only two occasions where anyone recalled Johnny becoming upset. Once when Pat was put to sleep, and later when a tabloid falsely accused him of animal cruelty. But Johnny's soft and sensitive side didn't cut the mustard with Arnold. On Monday the 23rd of February 1948, determined to get to the bottom of this, Arnold asked to meet Johnny at 16 Doors Road, in the sitting room of which he spotted the Henderson suitcases and passports. Fearing his ruse had been rumbled, Johnny spun a semi-believable story about drink and debts. He locked the flat, and unsure if he had pacified Arnold, he fired off another letter this time from Rose. Typed, signed, and dated Friday the 27th of February with a Birmingham postmark, it read, My dear Arnold, we've never had such a long silence. You must wonder what happened. Unfortunately, Archie found out that I was leaving him 
We had a perfect bust up at Brighton, and he threatened to commit suicide if I left him. Followed by some family bump from Bluster, of which... I thought we might come along and see you this weekend. But we must keep on the move for a while yet. Probably three or more weeks. We are keeping away from Archie's usual haunts. Archie is as good as gold, and he's seldom drinking. I only hope Johnny Haig is doing alright, because he's been a real brick to me during the last few months. Hope you are well. Don't worry. Give my love to Mummy. Rose. Did it work? Did it not work? Johnny didn't know. So just to be sure, he fired off a few postcards. 27th of February, Birmingham. Archie to Arnold and Johnny. I am doing very well. That is, roses. And we shall be returning at the end of March. Archie. Which made sense, as Archie was a man of few words. 5th of March, rugby postmark, Rose to Daisy. I hope you are all right and getting on well with Mr. Haig. We are very well and having a busy time. See you at the end of March. Kind regards, Rose. 5th of March, rugby, Rose to Arnold. Hope my letter puts your mind at rest. I expect the details would amuse you at least. Archie's still very good and the Brighton episode was a blessing in disguise. Love to Mumsy and all. Shall see you on the way back. Rose. Only this time, Johnny had misspelt Mumsy. And again, 5th of March, Rugby. In a postcard, written by Johnny, as Rose, and sent to himself. To let you know that we're all still well and very busy. Hope you are alright. Kind regards, Rose. And although Arnold couldn't help but be drawn in by the catalogue of convincing correspondence. He couldn't explain the passports, the suitcases, and why Rose's personal address book was found in Johnny's car. On Friday the 19th of March, having not spoken to Rose in person for more than a month, Arnold contacted a friend at the Stockport Police, who agreed to look into the possible disappearance of the Hendersons. Alarmed at this news and panicked, the very next day Arnold received a telegram. It simply read, Going to Scotland tonight? Contact you Tuesday or Wednesday. Rose. It was short, but as a stalling tactic, it gave Johnny time. As two days later, three letters arrived at three different addresses. 21st of March, Glasgow, Rose to Arnold and Mumsy, this time spelt correctly. This is very confidential, so you'll have to discuss its main points with Mr. Haig and McNabb Taylor, a firm of solicitors Johnny had appointed. I write to you in a hurry because our boat to South Africa leaves on Tuesday. And in the 15-page letter, in which he hammered home the need for everyone to lay low and to stay stumm, the key points were there. Write to us courtesy of the General Post Office in Durban until we know our new address. Letters of which would sit for months, gathering dust in a box. Archie has made over the property to Haig and sent it to McNabb Taylor for completion. Meaning Johnny owned 16 Doors Road. 
and all the while, reassuring what remained of Rose's family. I hope he won't feel too sore, but it's the only thing we could do if Archie wasn't to go bankrupt. I don't, I don't want, want you to worry about me. With my very warmest love to you all, yours, Rose. That day, a second letter was sent to McNabb Taylor, the solicitors, and a third was sent from Rose to himself, thanking Johnny. I'm glad to say we've done it, with many thanks to your assistance, which other friends seem to have lacked the courage to do. Yours very sincerely, Rose Henderson. And before Arnold could even reply, legally, the Henderson's assets were stripped, Johnny was back in the black, Arnold was none the wiser, and there was nothing anyone could do or prove. And as Arnold's detective friend and the Stockport police found nothing suspicious, the Hendersons were never reported missing. Everyone who knew them believed that they had started a new life 9,000 miles away. When in truth, they were little more than a black sludge, slowly sinking into the dirty soil at Leopold Road. To little Johnny Haig, murder had become routine. Yes, it sometimes got quite exciting when things went awry, as sticky beaks were stuck where they didn't belong, and the simple transfer of funds between two accounts was sullied by that tiresome annoyance. People. But people are people. Once again, Johnny had failed to learn from his fatal mistakes. As having overlooked a seemingly small detail, something had gone horribly wrong. But with a simple snip, the rose was clipped, its thorn was blunted, and whether by pluck or by luck, Johnny had pulled off another perfect murder. To pacify Arnold was simple. As his troubles began with a bounce check by Archie, Johnny just wrote him a new one. And once the cash had cleared, Arnold returned to Blackpool, and Johnny never saw him ever again. It took a single second to kill the Hendersons, just two days to dissolve their corpses, and after only eight weeks, Johnny had full control over their entire estate. And as a respected middle-class gentleman, with a business to run, good suits to wear, and three sports cars to drive, Johnny's toughest decision was between taking tea or tiffin with the rich widows at the Onslow Court Hotel. Annoyingly, as a notoriously irrational and irresponsible gambler, of the £20,000 Archie had been left in his dead wife's will, having sold 22 Ladbroke Square to cover his mounting debts, although Johnny had literally spent months perfectly preparing the untimely demise of his old pals, the Hendersons, their deaths only netted him a piffling £7,700. Yes, that's just over a quarter of a million pounds today, but it wasn't the three-quarter of a million pounds he'd been hoping for. But hey-ho. Still, with more than enough money to last a lifetime, this time at least, the killing spree of John George Haig would finally come to an end.
would it? Johnny Haig seems such an unassuming little fellow. Small and slight, neat and polite, and being just a few weeks from 40, blessed with a boyish face, dimpled cheeks, and an unbroken voice. As he nibbled his toast and supped his tea, the quiet little choir boy, whose mummy had dressed him in bow ties, was still easy to see, but not the monster that he claimed to be. For the last few hours, the four men sat in the stuffy cramped confines of interview room three of Chelsea Police Station. And as Chief Superintendent Barrett, Divisional Detective Inspector Symes, and Detective Inspector Webb listened, little Johnny Haig candidly recounted his callous crimes with the calmness of a man for whom murder was routine. And as each delicious detail tickled him, his feeble moustache bristled. But behind the dark dots of his marble-like eyes, there was nothing. I have made some statements about the disappearance of Mrs. Duran Deacon. The truth is, we left the hotel together and she was inveigled by me into going to Crawley. Having taken her to the storeroom at Leopold Road, while she was examining some paper for use as fingernails, I shot her in the back of the head and disposed of her in a tank of acid. Having befriended the McSwan family and the Hendersons, assumed their identities, inherited their estates, and drained their assets. All five had mysteriously vanished, and almost no one had noticed. Any investigation would prove fruitless. Years had passed, evidence was sold, and with no fingerprints or witnesses, basing his murders on the legal loophole that Corpus Delicti with no body, there can be no crime. All that remained of his victims was a yellowy-green sludge. And so cocky in his confidence, having already confessed to five perfect murders, John George Haig, one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, would now confess to a sixth. The how, the where, the when, every single detail but without a body, the police could do nothing. Johnny was broke. Again. Having first fleeced the fortunes of the McSwan family and blown every penny in two and a half years, as the Hendersons' deaths had netted him a hefty £7,700, almost a quarter of a million pounds today, this should have been enough money to last a lifetime. Only, after just eight months, Johnny had squandered the lot. Of the three vices Johnny had, all would bleed him dry. As a bad gambler, he couldn't tell a dead cert from an old nag. As a wannabe entrepreneur, he couldn't see a done deal from a dodgy dud. And most bafflingly of all, although he never had an ounce of empathy for anyone but himself... This working-class boy aspired to be accepted by those he secretly despised. By the first week of February 1949, being neck-deep in debt and having bounced his last cheque, 
Owen six weeks back rent to the Onslow Court Hotel, who had told him to pay up or get out. The middle-class reputation Johnny had cultivated was now in tatters. Business was bad. Nothing came of the silent jackhammer, the needle threader, the toy rocking horse, the battery-powered fan, or any other silly idea he had no skills to build. And with Edward Jones sick of his so-called partner's stupid schemes, Johnny's only other means of income had come to an end. As hard times bit hard, having sold Archie's Lagonda and Saloon 12, shamefully, this supreme swindler, who had been halfway to becoming a millionaire, scuttled back to his old tricks by illegally refinancing his Alvis for just 300 quid. Only now, being so in love with living the high life, this pittance wouldn't last him a day. But for Johnny, there was no going back. For this boy, born in the stark austerity of the Plymouth Brethren, there was nothing finer than sleeping on Indian linen sheets and taking tea and tiffin in the Tudor room of the Onslow Court Hotel. Being swarmed by a wealth of lonely widows, easily ensnared by the cheeky charms of a harmless man, here he was adored. But taking tea with Johnny was like putting a famished shark in a paddling pool. When I discovered there were easier ways to make a living, I did not ask myself whether I was doing right or wrong. That seemed to be irrelevant. I merely said, this is what I wish to do. If you're going to go wrong, go wrong in a big way. Go after women. Rich old women who like a bit of flattery. That's your market. Mrs. Duran Deacon was blessed with an impressively regal name, which reflected her upper-middle-class status. Born on the 28th of February, 1880, she was christened Henrietta Helen Olivia Robards Fargus, although for brevity's sake, she preferred to be called Olive. As the first of five children to Henry, a prominent solicitor, and Helen, a solicitor's wife, raised amongst the royal parks in the wealthy borough of Richmond, with private tutors, four servants, and a nurse, the upbringing of Olive could easily be described as privileged. And although she had money, above everything else, she had morals. Being smart and fiercely independent, Olive was protective of her younger siblings. Being five foot ten and fourteen stone, as a stoutly built and strongly willed girl, she stood up to bullies, shielded the weak, and had a fire in her belly to fight for the rights of those less fortunate. Not an easy feat in an era where women were second-class citizens. By the death of Queen Victoria, one of Britain's wealthiest and most powerful women, the average woman had less rights than a horse. Education was limited, careers were denied, prospects beyond marriage and babies were bleak, and denied the right to vote, women had no say in their own lives. In 1903, infuriated at the ineffective women's groups, whose crusades culminated in a strongly worded letter to the all-male British government, Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters Sylvia and Christine set up the Women's Social and Political Union, a small but powerful group 
who through deeds, not words, would fight, and if needed, die to give women the right to vote. One of the group was Olive. Refusing to be silenced and unfazed by the threat of arrest, in order to draw attention to their cause, they relied on new tactics, what they referred to as direct action, whether by heckling, threats or protests, hunger strikes, suicides and even bombs. Under the name of Mrs. Drew, Olive was unabashed at her own direct actions. She was expelled from the Albert Hall for shouting down the First Lord of the Admiralty. She publicly harassed Prime Minister Herbert Asquith and Cabinet Minister Winston Churchill. And being a staunchly vocal and physical supporter of women's rights, she took part in the Black Friday protest of 1910 and two citywide campaigns of targeted criminal damage across the West End in November 1911 and March 1912, the second of which would land Olive in prison. On Monday the 4th of March 1912, at 8 a.m., the Women's Social and Political Union congregated in Parliament Square for what their invite implied would be a series of speeches by well-known suffragettes. But in truth, this rally of little women was nothing but a cunning ruse. As the speeches began, in a simultaneous attack, over 150 women armed with hammers, stones and clubs smashed shop windows right across the West End. Olive and her pal, the radical suffragette Maud Joachim, broke six panes of glass at a jeweller's and a tea shop on Regent Street, causing £32 worth of damage. And although the press initially dubbed this as an act of mindless violence, it was actually a very calculated political statement, designed to prove that the government cared more about broken windows than a woman's life. As one of 126 women arrested, Olive spent five days in Holloway Prison, was fined £50, and was bound over for a year. But it was a small price to pay, as vowing to fight on until every last woman, regardless of class, wage or education, had the right to vote. By 1928, they had won. On the 13th of August 1918, 38-year-old Olive married Reginald Duran Deacon, a captain in the Gloucester Regiment who later became a wealthy London lawyer. And although a little late in life she had finally found love, standing true to her beliefs, her life would be good, but her fight would never be over. Unlike his other victims, a thin, timid drip, a weak pair of old recluses, a bankrupt, impulsive boozer, and a bedbound neurotic, Mrs. Duran Deacon would be no pushover. Compared to Johnny, she was taller, heavier, stronger, and a real force of nature who never let a mere man boss her about. But as Johnny knew, every victim had their fatal flaw, and hers was that she was lonely. After 20 years of wedded bliss, on the 25th of January 1938, Reginald died. 
with a will of £5,800, just over £360,000 today, her financial stability was assured. But a large pile of money is a poor substitute for the love, warmth and companionship of her beloved husband. And although she was lonely, she was never alone. Which was bad news for Johnny. Almost everything about Olive Durand Deacon made her unsuitable for his murderous plan. Olive was a well-known face in South Kensington's high society, who was liked by everyone and was an active participant in groups such as the Six Points Women's Suffrage, the Francis Bacon Society, Christian Science and the Solicitors and Artists Benevolent Fund, all of which she gave sizable donations. Olive was predictable, a precise and punctual lady who disliked surprises and rarely deviated from her schedule that she openly discussed with her closest friend, Constance Lane. And hating waste, she always informed the staff at the Onslow Court Hotel if she ever planned to be away, which was rare, or late. Olive was easy to spot, as a tall, broad and regal-looking lady who turned heads in her royal blue dress, black Persian lamb coat, large black hat, tortoiseshell spectacles and a bright red handbag who was never without her twin set of pearls, pearl-studded earrings, five rings studded with rubies, sapphires and diamonds, and a large Russian crucifix on a gold chain. Wherever she walked, she sparkled. But worse still for Johnny, her disappearance would be entirely out of character and unexpected. Olive was an honourable lady. She had no vices, debts or enemies. She lived sensibly, spent frugally, and although she tipped well, she never withdrew more than £5 per week to cover her needs. And with no psychological issues, as an older, overweight lady, she had no major medical problems, except for gallstones, which gave her a mild stomachache, and a new set of dentures she had recently had fitted. As his next victim, she was entirely unsuitable. Only Johnny was blindsided by one bright shining detail. Olive was rich, very rich, as having been bequeathed a small fortune by her late husband. As a savvy businesswoman, Olive had turned £5,800 into £37,000. She was a lonely widow who today would be worth £1.2 million. To Johnny, he had hit the jackpot and all it took was a little flattery. She was inveigled by me into going to Crawley. Having taken her into the storeroom at Leopold Road, while she was examining some paper for use as fingernails, I shot her in the back of the head. Following that, I removed her coat, jewellery, and disposed of her in a tank of acid. Oh, I should have said that, in between, I went round to a cafe for a cup of tea and scrambled egg. But she was so strong, so confident, and so feisty. She was a fiery independent woman who harangued prime ministers, smashed shop windows, and scrapped in the street with the police. So was her death really that simple?
Well, yes, it was. With his first five deaths at Oddle, and his sixth easy-peasy, having learned his lessons, murder really had become routine for Johnny. As always, he had made a few cock-ups here and there. Only this time, with his cocky calmness replaced by an impulsive recklessness, his mistakes weren't just big, they were stupid. This time, his crime had witnesses, Friday the 18th of February 1949 was Olive's last day alive. As usual, she took tea with Constance Lane in the small but tightly packed Tudor room. Olive said, I am going down to Mr. Haig's place in Crawley, where he experiments on different things. Her appointment was at 2.30, and the time was ten past two. At 2.15pm, Hilda Kirkwood, the hotel's bookkeeper, Witness Johnny leave via the front door, enter his garage at Mansion Mews, and drive two and a half miles east in his dark blue Alvis. Which was odd, as he was meant to meet Olive in 15 minutes. At 2.15pm, distinctively dressed in a royal blue dress, a large black hat, a black Persian fur coat, two pearl necklaces and a bright red handbag, Hilda watched as Olive hailed a cab and headed in the same direction. His plan was simple. As before, by meeting in a pre-arranged place, Johnny could ensure he was never seen with any victim on the day they died. Only having picked up Olive, he was spotted. Twice. First at 3.45pm, as Johnny's 20-horsepower Alvis trundled past Morris Loudner's garage at Povey Cross. The owner, who knew him well, having serviced his car on many occasions, saw Johnny drive his Alvis towards Crawley, and in the front seat, a lady who fitted Olive's description. At a little after 4pm, Olive needed to use the loo, so they stopped off at the George, a local hotel, where for the last five years, Johnny had often slept and ate. And having politely asked, Would you mind if I used a bathroom? The manager, Hannah Kaplan, would later positively identify Mrs. Duran Deacon and Johnny Haig. Just three streets from Leopold Road, and a few moments before her death. With Symes and Barrett having stepped away a while ago, as Haig concluded his confession to Detective Inspector Webb, although his mouth grinned, the soulless glare of his cold dead eyes gave away nothing. Mrs. Durandi can no longer exist. She has disappeared completely, and no trace of her can ever be found. How can you prove a murder if there is no body? But there was one thing that Johnny didn't know, the police were one step ahead. Being a master of silence, Webb waited until Johnny had run out of things to say and segued into small talk. Hey, guest. So, where were the other two? Suitably baited, Webb replied, Well, they shouldn't be very long now. They've got a fair way to come. Leaving that little morsel dangling on a hook, 
They've been a long time, haven't they? Where are they coming from? And with that, Johnny fell into Webb's trap. Oh, they've been down to Crawley. Johnny didn't react. No smile, no blink, no wince. Just a single, solitary gulp. But what could they prove? Nothing. For Johnny, the evening of Olive's death was just like any other. Disposal had become automatic by then. It was a fatiguing business getting a 14-stone carcass into an oil drum on one's own. It took me two hours. So hungry and tired, he had tea, toast, scrambled egg, a good night's sleep, and the next morning pumped the drum four-fifths full of acid and left. There was blood on the walls, a handbag on the floor, tortoiseshell spectacles on the bench, and a dead body dissolving in a drum. But with so much money to spend, Johnny was gone. And yet, before his cunning subterfuge of writing letters to lawyers and siblings began, it all took an unexpected turn. On the afternoon of Sunday the 20th of February, Constance Lane, a long-term resident at the Onslow Court Hotel, walked into Chelsea Police Station and reported her close friend, Olive Durand Deacon, as missing. And she was aided by Johnny Haig. Eager to limit the damage, as Police Sergeant Dale took down Olive's particulars, Johnny vainly barked, You have written down Mrs Lane's name and address, but you haven't asked for mine. I think you should. A decision that would prove fatal, as being so prominent in South Kensington's high society, her disappearance made the papers. And so did Johnny's name, a detail which didn't go unnoticed by Arnold Berlin. On Monday the 21st, three days had passed, but still the body hadn't dissolved. I returned to Crawley to find the reaction almost complete, but a piece of fat and bone was still floating in the sludge. Having pumped the drum four-fifths full of acid, although her flesh, muscles and bones had dissolved into a black acrid soup, parts of her left foot still bobbed about on the thick sticky surface of the yellowy-green gloop. I emptied off the sludge with a bucket and pumped a further ten gallons of acid into the tank to decompose the remaining flesh and bone, having tossed in her red handbag for good measure. A day later, I dumped it in the yard. And with that, the body was gone, evidence was destroyed, and Mrs. Durand Deacon had vanished. But the police were closing in. As a matter of routine in a missing persons case, WPS Alexandra Lambourne questioned everyone at the Onslow Court Hotel. Their answers were solid, but one resident stood out. As being too eager to tell his side of the story, although this neat little man came across as harmless, something about him caused her skin to crawl, and unhappy with his answers, she alerted her boss, Detective Inspector, Albert Webb. Across the week, 
Johnny volunteered several statements in connection to her disappearance. But with his details vague, his facts shifting, and his eyes cold and unemotional, having pulled his criminal record, although he had no history of violence, the detectives were left in no doubt that they were dealing with a fraudster, a forger, and a professional liar. So treading carefully, they brought him in for questioning. But instead of being free to speak, as Webb awaited his colleague's return, for the first two hours, all they did was sit and wait in silence. Exuding the calmness of a man who knew he would never be caught, Johnny supped his tea, nibbled his toast, and even had a snooze. But the delay was deliberate, and being so desperate to show off just how clever he really was, although he would brazenly confess to six perfect murders. By waiting, this gave Barrett and Symes more than enough time to examine the storeroom at Leopold Road. Given permission by Edward Jones to break the lock, everything was as Johnny had left it a few days prior. His cleanup wasn't even slapdash, it was non-existent, but he knew he didn't need it to be. With the later investigation, headed up by Home Office pathologist Dr. Keith Simpson and Detective Chief Inspector Guy Mahon, inside they found three carboys of acid, an Enfield Mark I revolver, 11 rounds of 38 caliber ammunition, a rubber apron, a set of rubber gauntlets, an army-issue gas mask, several items marked with a large monogrammed H, 10 strips of rubber cellophane, believed to be a prototype for artificial fingernails, a broken monocle, a spatter of blood-stained whitewash removed from between two windows, an attaché case full of passports, driving licenses, identity cards, ration books, and marriage certificates, all in the names of William Donald McSwan, Donald McSwan, Amy McSwan, Archibald Henderson and Rosalie Henderson. And outside in the yard, three 40-gallon steel drums, two badly rusted and one nearly new but empty and dry, and a large quantity of yellowy-green sludge. It was a wealth of evidence, but it was all circumstantial. And it wasn't a body. From the basement at 79 Gloucester Road, they recovered some unspecified sludge from inside the manhole and an old worn-out axe gifted by Johnny to the estate agent Albert Marshall. From room 404 of the Onslow Court Hotel, they found a large stash of personal possessions belonging to all six victims, including Max typewriter, Archie's suits, every piece of forged paperwork relating to the theft of their estates, a shopping list written in Johnny's handwriting for a drum, acid, stirrup pump, gloves, apron, rags, cotton wool, red paper, etc. And amongst his dirty linen, they found a bloodied shirt. And although he fully confessed, That must be Mrs. Durand Deacon's blood. I was wearing that shirt when I shot her. Again, it was circumstantial evidence. But it wasn't a body. After a painstaking examination of the yard at Leopold Road, having sieved 400 pounds of soil, the police found the smashed frames of Olive's spectacles and the plastic handle of her red handbag, 
as well as several fragments of bone identified as the left foot of an elderly human female. The broken pieces of Olive's dentures, identified by her dentist. And amazingly, even what they believed was one of her gallstones. But once again, it wasn't a body. In fact, with everything having been dissolved into an unrecognizable stew, these random bits of a dead woman were as close as the police would ever come to finding the remains of Mrs. Durand Deacon. When shown all of the legal letters he had forged, although Johnny Cockley crowed, Yes, I wrote all of the signatures. Even going as far to quip, I signed Mac's name. I remember I didn't make a good job of it. Instead of Donald, I wrote Ponald. Even his diary, in which he had celebrated each killing with an initial, A is for Archie, R is for Rose. Knowing that, with no body, there could be no crime. As circumstantial evidence, it meant nothing. He had given the police everything, and having confessed to the murders of six innocent people, the McSwans, the Hendersons and Mrs. Duran Deacon, John George Haig, one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, would never be convicted. Or so he thought. Across his six supposedly perfect murders, little Johnny Haig had made a lot of mistakes, many of which he had miraculously got away with. And although many were big, they were not the biggest. As back in Lincoln Prison, on the day he had concocted his murderous plan, he had made a fatal mistake. Back in interview room three at Chelsea Police Station, Bored of waiting, Johnny impatiently pressed, What are they doing now? Symes and Barrett, I mean. Well, John, I don't really know, but I should imagine they're working hard in order to get you hanged. Hanged? What on earth for? Oh, you know very well that they only hang people for one reason in this country. Don't you, John? And he did. But having once read in a law book about corpus delicti, Johnny knew, You can't prove that I murdered anybody. You can't prove a murder without a body. Webb retorted, Oh, yes, you can. And as Webb listed two famous trials off the top of his head, with that cocky grin firmly wiped off his smug little face, Johnny gulped. Corpus delicti. With no body, there can be no crime. But his mistake was to assume that by body, the law meant a human body. But it doesn't. It means body of evidence. All the police needed was enough circumstantial evidence to prove where the victim had been, how they had died and been disposed of, and more importantly, who had killed them. And having confessed to six murders, including Mrs. Duran Deacon's, Johnny had given the police everything. On the 2nd of March 1949, Johnny was charged with the murder of Henrietta Helen Olivia Robards Duran Deacon, to which he replied, I have nothing to say. The irony lost on him. As many moons before, 
he had boasted to his cellmate. Who can tell if a murder has taken place, if a person completely disappears? Only the murderer would know, and if he kept his mouth shut, he would be safe. On the 18th of July 1949, at Sussex Assizes, he pleaded his innocence. But after a two-day trial, and having deliberated for just 17 minutes, a unanimous jury found him guilty, and he was sentenced to death. On Wednesday the 10th of August 1949, at 9am, taking just seven seconds from the opening of the cell door to his little torso dangling from a taut hemp rope, a seasoned executioner, Albert Pierpoint, perched the tiny trembling monster on a chalk X, granted no last words, no final requests, no quickie cigarette, no speeches, no bullshit, and no time for tears. With his last ever sight blocked by a thick white hood, as his skilled slayer pulled the lever, the trapdoors parted, and as his little body plunged seven feet and four inches into a dark cold void, as the hemp rope tugged tight, the two top vertebrae of his neck snapped to the right and little Johnny Haig was dead. And with that, the killing spree of John George Haig, one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, finally came to an end. But was his death really that simple? Well, yes, it was. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.